Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. It is Wednesday morning, December the 7th. Wow. A day that will live in infamy. 843 661 December 7, 1941. I know those dates because my brother-in-law turns 60 on December the 6th, which would have been yesterday. So my wife's right. brother, who I grew up with, it's kind of a unique story. I mean, my wife's brother was my best friend growing up, and I always noticed he had a sister that was easy on the eyes, so to speak. <laughs> um, so I didn't care much for him. It was just my way to, you know, stay close to that girl who was easy on the eyes oh, so to speak so you had a plan but all this time he thinks we had some deep you know entrusting friendship oh no 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 it was never about that mm-hmm. you had a pretty sister um anybody that grew up knew the boys who had pretty sisters right let's be easy i mean i know it's we live in an enlightened era a woke time a political correct um celebrated uh period of time but anybody you know when you're young and dumb um you, you have these friends who have these siblings you begin to notice once testosterone becomes a reality oh, yeah. i think we um, all probably have a story I, I think we all do you just didn't marry her normally you know what i mean <laughs> true <laughs> but but um i captured her before she got out of pamplico because i knew if she ever got across you know i knew if she got past evergreen the, the pickings would be more ripe <laughs> and fruitful and she'd find somebody much much more convincing than yours than yours truly so um I basically harvested her, you know, at, a, at an early. I'm thinking about ballot harvesting and whatnot. Oh um, let's get into politics. <laughs> let, big story. Let me mention this, okay. though. December 7th is a day that lives in infamy for me because today is my anniversary. Okay. Happy anniversary, right? Thank, thank you very much. And it is also my oldest son's birthday. Okay. He, he was born. I wish him a happy birthday. Well, well, happy birthday to Grayson. We'll do that later because I doubt he's up and rolling yet. Yeah. I mean, he may be up, but he ain't rolling yeah. um, yet. <laughs> he, so, he, so he, was born, a, he was born on our fourth anniversary. Okay, good deal. That's that's interesting. Mm-hmm. It happens to be the day that the, the Japanese bombed <laughs> Pearl Harbor. And we were mar- married on the 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. You know, I was thinking about this. When I was younger, um, I remember my grandfather getting angry with me because I bought a 280ZX, or my dad helped me buy a 280ZX. My dad said there's 100 things to do. If you do one of these right, I'll help you buy a car. One out of 100, I can do that. But if he said two out of 100, I probably failed miserably. My dad knew the expectations, and it was normally academically. My dad coaxed my brother and I into becoming good students, and it just didn't work. Uh, We we were average students. Neither one of us really cared much for uh, the academics of life. My sister, before she uh, passed away, was an honors graduate from college and all that that good stuff. And, um, and, and, you know, my, my kids did a little better academically than I did, but my father was a kind of a hard-charging, self-made business guy, and he felt if you weren't working, you weren't being productive. So sitting in a room for two hours doing your homework was not something very important to him. Why aren't you trimming the hedges? Why aren't you cutting the grass? Because I got homework to do. Ah, that homework. Don't worry about that. If you're smart enough to make a C. And he didn't say that, but it was kind of an inference uh, of that. 843-661-0937. The inevitable happened. Someone, well, about three people texted me last night at about 8.30 and said, Walker's taking the lead. And in the interim, I was um, texting with Kahaley. Robert and I were texting with one another, and um, and Robert said, false flag, false lead, misleading um, data. DeKalb County's holding their ballots. Um, why? Why are they holding their ballots? I don't have any idea, but 5% of DeKalb County had reported, and once DeKalb County started coming in, I mean, DeKalb County is a deep blue county in um, in Georgia, 
And once those votes started coming in, the um, the thirty or 40,000 vote, I think I saw it at one time, Walker had about a 40,000 vote lead, but Robert always said, no way. I mean, he had to have a big, big turnout on election day, and it was not enough to overcome, I think, the 1.9 million early votes cast, of which Warnock won 65, 35-ish, somewhere thereabout. Uh, you're not winning elections on election day any longer, guys. Forget that. I mean, it, it, that's just over. I mean, it's um, it, it's a little bit like a college football coach who says, I don't care what they do with transfer portal and NIL. I'm not participating. I'm going to keep running my program <laughs> okay. as See how I that have. works out. Well, I mean, I'm thinking about Dabo. I mean, Dabo doesn't like it. Dabo's let it be known that he does not like the NIL and transfer portal. But Dabo's not stupid, and Dabo likes to win. And at some point in time, Dabo Sweeney will begin gently embracing some of the practical realities of NIL and the transfer portal. It's not whether you like it or not. It doesn't matter what you like. I tell my kids, and, you know, I tell them a lot of things that, ah, a few things didn't make sense. The one thing I've told all three of my kids, you can have this idealistic view of the world. You can romance about the way you wish things were. But at some point in your existence, you've got to meet the world where it is. It doesn't mean you like it. doesn't mean you approve of it. But, but you've got to accept it to some degree that you're not king of the world. You're not master of the universe. You don't get to let, uh, you don't get to put everything in its place. And you've got to meet things where they are sometimes. So when I think of the Republican Party, I do see some comparison to Dabo Sweeney. I mean, Dabo's built a hell of a football program. I mean, uh, you know, one of the most elite programs in, um, in my generation. But, but it's beginning to, I mean, I'm not saying it's struggling because it's certainly not struggling. But you're beginning to see a little bit. See, I'm before my hands are a party around. Mm-hmm. Just a smidgen. There a li- you, see, you see a little bit of decline here. And I think a lot of the reason you're seeing a little bit of decline is the transfer portal and NIL. And the, when the coach doesn't buy into that, when he doesn't accept, he doesn't have to embrace it. But when he refuses to accept this as a reality of where we are, you're going to see a little bit, once again, a little bit of decline there. So um, I think the Republican Party has to realize that we're leading, kind of living in a different realm. I mean, it's not the, the, the election day of years gone by. It is now a, a month, a season, a process. Um, you know, voting harvesting or ballot harvesting is a big part of this. It's kind of a new age in college football. It's a new age in American politics. And I would probably say Walker won yesterday 64, 60 to 40 ish somewhere there about i mean he probably won in a landslide by somewhere around 20 percentage points some of the early data reporting says that um walker had about 100 well about 1.72 million votes warnock had about 1.8 uh, 14 million votes so um 51 point what three to 48.7 i mean it was closer than even i anticipated i mean i really thought 53 47 would have been the margin um and the republicans have to say grace over this you know, because once again, Trump is an announced candidate for president and in the four most pivotal races, right? I mean, what four did we really talk a lot about during the, the the period of time leading up to the midterms? We talked a lot about the Arizona Senate race. We talked a lot about the Nevada Senate race. Talked a lot about the Pennsylvania Senate race. Talked a lot about the Georgia Senate race. What is, quote unquote, Trump's record in those four? I mean, it's 0-4. That's a big deal, guys. We, we got to come to grips with that we got to say grace over where to go from here. J.D. Vance won in Ohio, but, but J.D. Vance was going to win in Ohio anyway. Ohio's not a swing state. Florida's not a swing state. There are four swing states that Trump endorsed senatorial candidates, and every single one of them lost. 
I'm not saying it's Trump's fault, but there's something we've got to address internally. Um, and I've got kind of an idea or a concept that we'll get into as the show progresses. Someone there? Let's go to the phone. Let's go to Bobby in Hartsville. Hello, Bobby. Hey, good morning, guys. Yeah, this thing in Georgia has really just, it just disappointed me. I, I just, I'm just disappointed in Georgia. That, that's, you know, I'm just so irritated that this has happened. I woke up at 2 o'clock. I probably care more about it than I should. I woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning for some reason. And, of course, I look at my phone, and I said, figures. I, I You know, when I went to bed, I think it was close. And uh, But I'm just, I'm just, I, I mean, South Carolina is just so red, and now Florida is red. And, and Georgia's right there in our same area. And I know you have the big Atlanta area, and I'm, I'm sure that makes a big difference. But it is just really, really disappointing. And, yeah, we need to do something to, to uh, figure out Georgia. We really do. Thank you, Bobby. Appreciate that. I mean, I was I was distraught, but I was not surprised. I mean, I, I said yesterday morning at some point in time during the show, I went to the London betting market, and London the London bookers had Warnock at about an eighty nine percent chance of winning. Now, now that doesn't mean he wins sixty forty. See, there, there's a there's a confusion people have. Well, if it's going to be fifty one forty eight, you know, or fifty two forty eight, fifty one forty nine, how can he have only a ten percent chance of winning? Well, I mean, they run these scenarios and models and, and you know, mock-ups. And under any case, I mean, I was on Nate Silver's site last night, 538, and I'm texting with Robert. And Robert was very kind to me last night, very gracious, because I've told Kahaley, I mean, full disclosure, you ready? I don't know if you mm-hmm. want me to say this over the air or not. I told Robert, I said, Robert, you are a pollster. You're an extremely talented pollster. You're not a prognosticator. You're not the guy that needs to be picking games. At the beginning, at the end of game day on college football, they always have the last 10 minutes. What do they do? They pick yeah. games yeah. and they give commentary. Um, they, they base that, that, that picking of a game on their analysis of what they think will happen in the Clemson-North Carolina game or the South Carolina-Notre Dame game. They'll eventually do that. And I, and I just told Robert, I said, Robert, you are a strategist. You're a pollster. You're a data gatherer. I mean, you're in the analytics business. Let somebody else do that. <laughs> Let somebody else take the Trafalgar poll and say what they believe is going to happen. Um, to me, it diminishes his, uh, I don't want to say his aura, but it does diminish some of what people put faith in in a guy. I mean, if I'm if I'm Robert, here's what I say. Um, Robert Cahaley of Trafalgar is with us. Robert, you, what do you think is going to happen in Georgia? I think it's going to be close. Our poll has it at 51:49 our poll has it at 52:48 robert what do you think will happen i'm not here to address that but I mean, there're plenty of pundits and talking heads that do that for a living and they move on to the next day or the next story i'm not here to tell you who i think is going to win or not i'm trying i'm trying to justify my science i'm trying to defend the analytics i use to get to a certain uh, what i perceive to be a predictable outcome but i'm not here to pick horses i'm not here to pick races um, I, I just think some of these pollsters really, I don't want to say got full of themselves, but they felt it was their job to not only provide analytics, but, but, you know, predict who they thought was going to win. Well, when the show hosts were doing that, I remember watching Hannity and, uh, Robert went on Hannity a lot and Hannity would set him and another, another pollster up and he would make them pick races. And, and I would have said, I'm not here, Sean, to do that. I mean, I'll, I'll let my data speak for itself. I have faith in my data. You know, we have to evaluate perpetually whether our, our data is trustworthy or not. Um, you have a bad cycle, you got to go back and look at your modeling. 
You know, why, why were we off by two percentage points? Where did we get it wrong? And, um, and I think right now it's very confusing for, for pollsters because they're turning unlikely voters into likely voters. And the majority of trusted polling includes what? Not registered voters, not unlikely voters, but who's likely to show up and how are they likely to cast that ballot? I mean, that's the nature of polling. And all of a sudden with ballot harvesting, this new normal in American politics, they're taking unlikely, but they're actually taking unregistered voters turning them into registered voters, someone stopped me at the gym yesterday and said, hey, a while back you said that they're taking unregistered voters, turning them into registered voters. What do you mean by that? I said, if you are a registered, I mean, if you have a driver's license in about, I think there's uh, about seven of the 13 states that what I have, what they'll have what I'll call very liberal and lax election um, law. There's about six or seven of the 13 that allow for unsolicited ballots. In other words, if Rev has a driver's license but is never registered to vote, they're going to mail him a ballot anyway. He's not a registered voter. He certainly, I mean, if he's not registered, he's not unlikely or likely. He's not a registered voter. But they're mailing him a ballot anyway because he went to DMV and got a driver's license. And once that list shows up at a ballot harvester that Dave Baker's not, I mean, he's never participated in elections, but he's got a ballot in his house somewhere. That's when the knock on the door happens. So we're taking unregistered, turning them into registered. We're taking registered, turning them into unlikely. And we're taking unlikely, turning them into into likely. And it's hard to poll that. It's hard to get that right. And I would simply say, if I were a pollster, and Robert's my buddy, my analytics and data speak for themselves. I'll let you guys, Sean, I got a buddy in Florence. I'll let, I'll let guys like you tell our tell their listeners or viewers what they think is going to happen, what they predict will happen um, down the road. Let's go to the phone. Breeze is our next caller. Hey, Breeze, you're on. Hey, guys. Uh, Ken, though, there's no way of knowing that that person actually really, truly voted like they say they did. There's no way that they're going to um, authenticate the, 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 the ballot, is there? No, and Breeze, here's the most concerning part of Arizona and Georgia, and I can't speak for other states, but in some of these places, there are big governmental housing projects, and they'll have thousands of apartments. And in those thousands of apartments, that they're all registered, unregistered, likely, unlikely voters. But in the mail rooms of those apartment complexes in some of these major American cities, they'll drop off 2,000 ballots. And those ballots will be sitting there in a mail room. And I think harvesters go by and grab a handful of those ballots. They've got a name on it. But, but they're in the mailroom, and I think those ballot harvesters, that's where they make their hay. I can't relate to that because I'm from Pamplico. You're originally from Lake City. There's not a 10,000 apartment complex, government-subsidized housing project in Pamplico or Lake City, but there are in Philadelphia. There is in Phoenix. There is in Atlanta, and I think they're dropping off these ballots by the thousands in some of these mailrooms in these huge apartment complexes, and the harvester shows up the day of— and they grab a handful of these ballots. They track these people down. They don't have to walk 50 miles to find 2,000 people. They can walk a half mile and find 2,000 people. And I think that's where they're making their hay. But, but my point is, I'm wondering if these are actual votes. We don't know that. We don't know that. That's, that's the point I'm making, So You don't know that. You don't. That we don't know if these are actual votes. Because you would have to believe that over half the people in Georgia, and you can't sit there and say, well, you know, it's not like, you know, you can say, well, black folks vote Democrat. Yeah, they do. But they aren't over half the population of the state of Georgia. 
Okay, and then, you know, you got to throw in the fact that probably 90% of the white people ain't worth a crap, and I can give you that too. But still, you got to think that daggold, uh, over half the people in the state of Georgia voted for, and I don't want to go through his whole litany of reasons not to vote for Warnock, but you'd have to think that over half of those people are just that screwed up. Now, that being said, hell, we live here in South Carolina, and, you know, we talk about being a red state. Well, hell, we sent Lindsey Graham. The daggolds are all, you had to watch them for, what, 30 years? We can't be that daggold red. And another thing I was sitting there thinking is, is uh, I, I can't help, you got to blame the Republicans. Either they're really that stupid, like I keep saying, or either they're in on it also. So you're telling me that when all of this stuff, when, you know, when I remember in 2020, you and I and everyone were saying, hey, this bail-in ballot stuff, it's going to be a bad idea, and it'll give the Democrats a chance to cheat. And you can't tell me that somebody at the Republican Party didn't maybe have a friend in the Democrat Party that told them, hey, man, I tell you what, we're going to whip y'all's butt. We're going to whip y'all's butt with uh, bail-in votes, and we're going to do ballot harvesting, and we're going to go over there, and we're going to however many voters, votes we need, we'll go into our little, that gold uh, ballot harvesting box, and we'll beat y'all every time. So why didn't the Republicans, if they were they're either as stupid or they were in on it, why didn't the Republicans follow suit immediately with the Democrats? Are the Democrats really that much smarter than the Republicans? They are. And neither are the Republicans really that much smarter than Democrats. Like I keep saying, the Democrats aren't incompetent. They're doing everything they want to do, and they're doing it on purpose. And are the Republicans that incompetent? Are they doing everything they want to do? Are they doing it on purpose? You see what I'm saying? Sure, I do. I just don't. I just don't believe that the Republicans could be that stupid to where a guy from Pamplico and a guy from Lake City has got to tell these guys that are supposed to be this bag old smart, "Hey, man, you know, look, it looks like the Democrats are going to do A, B, C, and D. We better do the same thing in those states, or we will get our butt handed to it." And then somebody in the Republican Party is going to say, wow, kid, wow, Breeze, y'all are geniuses. We never thought of that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Sure I do. Thank you, Breeze. Appreciate it. Yeah, and that, that's, you know, why aren't we doing some of the same things the Democrats are doing? Um, I want to get into a discussion about the um, the RNC chairman. I think Zeldin announces today that he's in. Now, now Ronna really? McDaniel says that she has 108. Let, let's Let's hold that for a second. Uh, Freehold, I don't want to get too far behind. It's already a bit behind. First break of the morning. I'll just say her record stinks. Yeah, I mean, it, it, she's not winning. Well, it, and that's the point I wanted to make. The, 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 the female, hold on. We'll be back in just a minute. 843-661-0937. There's a lawyer, Harmeet Dillon, that is, um, is considering, I think she's already announced, she announced now that she's Tucker. running against Ronna McDaniel for RNC chairwoman. Um, RNC chair. I mean, instead of calling chairman or chairwoman, it's RNC chair to be um, respectful and politically correct. And if it's a woman, it is an RNC chairwoman. But um, but Harmeet Dillon is basically arguing, wake up. I mean, wake up for God's sake. Let's stop with the campaign speeches of the 1970s and 80s. Let's stop with the uh, believing that we live in this old age of American politics and i wrote this list polls historical trends message issues candidate quality traditional get out the vote efforts candidate debates voter persuasion 
I mean, that, that means something, but it means almost nothing when it comes to winning races today. That there are four words that matter. Ballots out, ballots in. How do you get the ballots out and how do you get the ballots in? It's ballot harvesting is where we are. You could, you could elect or select a random name in a phone book and get that person elected. I mean, Pennsylvania elected a dead man because they have an unbelievable ballot harvesting operation. And the Republicans have to come to grips with that reality. Um, I mean, I, I don't question, nor do I doubt, that candidate quality matters to some degree. Um, abortion matters to some degree. Um, did, did, did America first have extreme candidates? I mean, I'll let you tell me. I mean, is, uh, is Dr. Oz an extreme candidate? Is Blake Masters an extreme candidate? Is Adam Laxalt an extreme candidate? Is Herschel Walker an extreme candidate? They're different for sure. I mean, there's no doubt about it. They're very different, and the Republican electorate right now kind of like different. But, but it doesn't have anything to do with all of that. It's about ballots out, ballots in. That is the number that we need to pay closest attention to. And Harmeet Dillon is basically saying, I mean, she's a lawyer, very closely associated with America First and the Donald Trump organization. Um, she says that, you know, we got to stop looking at elections like we did in the 70s and 80s. And then she sarcastically says, you know, it's time to do things, you know, like um, win elections, you know, and, uh, and take over, um, you know, bodies and delegations and whatnot. Um, the, the problem is you've got these entrenched figures, David Bossie, who is a RNC, uh, he's a committee member, but he's also a highfalutin lawyer. I mean, he released a statement yesterday. You ready? From finding a new chair and new platform for our nominee to debate to ensuring a successful nominating process to putting on a convention for the next president of the United States, the RNC needs a proven leader, a proven leader who understands that a healthy national party starts from the grassroots up. Rona McDaniel is the leader we need. Bossy carries a lot of weight. I mean, he's a very respected RNC um, figure. So you've got um, you've got Lee Zeldin considering, and I think he'll announce today whether he's in or not. She is circulating. She being Rona McDaniel is circulating a letter with 108 um, names of support. There's only 168 members. So if these people stick to their guns, I mean, if she really has the the um, the word of these 108 you know, members of the committee that will elect the next RNC chairman. I mean, there's no need in Zeldin or Dylan announcing. There aren't enough, um, you know, undecideds out there to win. Now, once again, people change their mind. People lie. I mean, I find out the hard way. People to tell you something and not do it from time to time. So so could Lee Zeldin or Hermit Dylan get in, go to California in January and sway some um, some delegates or some committee members? I don't know. Don't have any idea how that happens. But there's the conundrum that the Republicans find themselves in. Um, you've got um, three people, Rona McDaniel, who to me has been unsuccessful. I don't know how good a lady she is or not. I don't know how competent she is or not. I know that for consecutive election cycles, we've lost races we shouldn't have lost. Is that her fault? She said yesterday, I don't know if you saw this or not, but it's kind of an interesting analogy. She said yesterday that the RNC's job is to build the roads, to build the infrastructure to help candidates win. The... The candidates have to travel those roads on their own merit. I mean, they've got to convince voters that I'm the, the person, you know, able to do the job. And we can't build the road and build the candidates. And she talked about candidate quality and the voters selected, you know, Adam Laxalt. The voters selected um, Blake Masters. The voters selected, because remember, guys, primaries are not elections. They're selections. 
the political party selects its candidate, its nominee. Blake Masters was selected amongst the field of Republicans in Arizona. Um, Adam Laxalt. I don't know that he had. He might have had a uh, run. Yeah, I think he had an opponent in the in the primary. Um, Dr. Oz was selected. Herschel Walker was selected. But I don't think you can escape the reality. We can't blame Rona McDaniel for four Trump-endorsed candidates that Trump heavily invested in were, were unsuccessful in swing states. I mean, you can't neglect that. You can't refuse to believe that that's important. You can't be blinded by loyalty to America first when, when the practical reality is Walker lost in a winnable race, Oz lost in a winnable race, Laxalt lost in a winnable race, and Masters lost in a winnable race. We've got to do somewhat of a postmortem and figure out where to go from here. Now, here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. Is somebody on the phone? Let's go there. It's Joe in Hartsville. Morning, Joe. Yeah, good morning, guys. Uh, the biggest problem we've got is the Democrat Party has been building this coalition for probably 50 years. They, they saw back in the 70s how to organize and they were the young ones raising hell, and we we don't think that some of the people they put up are radical. <laughs> They're just as crazy as we are. But what they've done is they built the teachers' unions, they built the SEIU, they built the AFL-CIO, they built the railroad workers' union. All these unions are are paid basically through the government. Look at where most of the polling places are. They're at schools. So they shut down the schools. You've got all this labor on the ground to run the elections. You've got all these unions that are paid, and they go out and they get these harvested votes. How do you think Philadelphia, you know, Pennsylvania, I think, gives every person a driver's license. And when they send out those ballots, they send them out to every person who has a driver's license. Whether it's legal or illegal, that's how they vote 125 to 130 percent of their registered voters. You know, that's that's how that happens. So we've got to. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I I don't know how we win to start with because they've built such a a, a program, and every one of these bills, the Democrats always tuck in. 10, 15, $20 billion that goes out to all these different little groups, that that's all they do is pay people to go protest, to go, you know, do whatever, get out the boat. How, but uh, just like Jeff was talking yesterday, you know, he's never seen that kind of attack on a, on a Capitol before. Well, obviously he wasn't watching Scott Walker's recall re-election when the Democrats went to Illinois to keep from voting against the unions. They completely took over the Capitol. I mean, there are pictures where that whole place is full of nothing but SEIU and all the unions, and they're raising so much hell. But, you know, they didn't fight back against that. They just let them take over. So it's... Jeff leaves out a lot of stuff. He says, you agree with this, don't you? Well, ask Jeff, do you agree it's given that the FBI had 24 agents embedded with Proud Boys and uh, Oath Keepers? 
because the whistleblowers are coming out and saying that. Do you agree that six FBI agents dressed up as MAGA people were inside the Capitol telling people, come on in, come on in? You know, that's that's all coming out. But if anybody thinks that, that Joe Biden or Hunter Biden or all these people are going to be prosecuted, Hunter Biden, when Joe was running Amtrak back and forth every day, guess what Amtrak did? They put Hunter Biden on their board of directors, paid him a couple hundred thousand dollars. When Visa in Delaware was looking for favorable legislation, what did they do? They put Hunter Biden on their board of directors. So this has been going on forever. These people need to wake up. Thank you, Joe. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, but but there's a. We've talked about the concept since I've been on the radio of at some point in time, there will be more riding in the wagon than pushing or pulling the wagon. Well, I mean, I think that's where we are. And it's not just freeloaders. It's not just people who have grievances against society and the Democrat Party has convinced them because you didn't end up where you thought you would. It's not your fault. Society was against you. The odds were stacked not in your favor, but that there were a multitude of things that you couldn't control and come get in the wagon. I mean, it will help settle that score. But, but guys, we've got to accept that it's not just a bunch of freeloaders in that wagon. They're a, a bunch of corporate interest. They're a bunch, of prof, a bunch of professionals in general. I mean, Wall Street's in that wagon. The, the financial sector, by and large, is in that wagon. A, a lot of American manufacturing is in that wagon. The, the majority of international conglomerates are in that wagon. So when I talk about the wagon and people are riding and not pushing and pulling – that we've allowed government to become so ah, effective in, in, in creating advantages for certain groups of people. Once again, there is a grievance class. There's no doubt about it. I mean, there, there's an element in America that is in some people's kind of belly bones and soul where they don't believe they're responsible for where they ended up. And government says, of course you aren't. I mean, do you not see how society's been constructed? It's not your fault that you ended up here. Get in this wagon. We'll carry you to a better place. Yeah, there, there's a lot of that. But there are also a lot of corporate interests, a lot of wealthy people, a lot of um, international businesses that are in that wagon as well because lining up with government is far more favorable than not. So if you are a, I mean, if you're a CEO of a Fortune 500 business and this America First movement mandates change. I mean, we're going to change the way things are done. We don't know exactly where we end up, but we're changing the status quo. We're changing the model that you guys helped build. You're going to fight against that tooth and nail. And we don't have as much to fight for. That's what I keep saying. You know, when you believe in small government and you're confronted with a force that believes in big government and you're arguing over government, they're naturally going to be more motivated than you are because you're fighting for something you really don't believe in. You know what I mean? I mean, I'm, I'm fighting in the name of government. Why, what are you fighting about? I want to make it smaller and more restrictive, more, more you know, uh, less intrusive. Well, you're not going to fight as hard as I am because I want government to be big and strong and intrusive and involved and, and integrated in all of our lives in society. I, got, I, don't, I mean, there's no way. I mean, I'm the liberal Dave's the conservative. Dave and I are arguing about the role of government. And the second I find out that Dave is for small government, limited government, the cozy campfire of government that our founders romanced about, that's the day that I know Dave Baker's never going to outlast me. 
He's not going to fight as long and hard as I am because I want government to do certain things. I want government to be more and more involved. I want government to settle some of these scores. I want government to be kind of an economic and um, and societal, you know, field leveler, so to speak. So, so Rev, Rev will eventually run out of gas. He'll go away. Rev's not going to that apartment complex and, and harvesting a thousand ballots and find the people that those ballots belong to because he doesn't believe in government. That we're, we're at a, a critical disadvantage in what we're, we're fighting over control of the government and we want government to be less um, consuming, less involved, less intrusive, smaller by nature. Um, and liberals know that. I mean, the smart ones do. And, and they play that game, uh, kind of the long game, much better than um, conservatives historically have. Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few. See, I'm, I'm not insulted by much, but declare me a man of no action. I'm a bit insulted by that, <laughs> a man of words and no action. Um, I won't, Can I get that changed? Uh, yeah, I'll change. I can okay. write that. Enough, I, yeah, I'm a bit insulted by that. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a joke. I get it, man. <laughs> it's I, a joke. I'm playing a joke on that joke. <laughs> I know. Let's go to the phone. Here's Barry and Sherrall. Morning, Barry. Hey, good morning, guys. Uh, I want to start off by apologizing to those World War II veterans uh, that fought so hard for our freedoms that we're not doing anything about anything that's going on in this country um, on Pearl Harbor Day. You know, um, this is this is sickening, uh, Ken. We're doing nothing. We're basically getting closer and closer to tribalism. I, I feel like uh, you better get to a red state. Georgians don't come to us. We don't want you. Stay over there. Um, you want to be blue? Stay over there and, and be blue. If you don't want to fight for what you believe in, and I'm not talking about violence, people. Just, just so you know, um, it's just it's it's crazy to see what we're doing to to this country, uh, Ken. And you know, you look at Brazil. They're fighting. They know if they give it up, uh, it's communism, and South America's taking over by communism. So they're the last free country in South America. So what is I mean, what is he doing, Bolsonaro? He, he's not giving up. And the military looks like it's gonna, it, it's fighting. They're they're taking out the drug dealers in the north that are lunas. So at some point, it's gonna come to a head here. I mean, I just I I, I don't see no other way. The, you cannot continue to put us in a box. And the reason January sixth. The reason the government probably did it is 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 to back us off because if you don't if you recall, there was a lot of protests going on, a lot of uprisings against the government and what happened January sixth. And have you had a have you had one since then, Ken? Have you had a protest since January sixth? They've been very limited. Okay. And it's no coverage, no nothing, right? There's none been in D C since January sixth. So they they did exactly what it. Well, nobody wants to go to jail for two years. Yeah, exactly. It's a psyop. I mean, you you're going to go to jail for trespassing for two years. You're you're sitting in a gulag in D.C. Which, if y'all don't know, D.C. jail is the worst jail in America. So, you're sitting in a gulag for two years over a trespassing charge, and your life's pretty much done because you have no finance after that. Nobody's going to hire you in corporate America. What a January six. So. Guys, I it, I don't I don't know what to tell everybody. Just I I say it all the time. Pray and prep. Pray and prep. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Barry. Appreciate it. Guys, I've warned this. I mean I've said that there's going to be a point in time. I don't know why we believe we're immune 
to, to what other nations have had to deal with. And I'm talking about separation. I mean, go back. I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred I used to think you were crazy when I mean, you said that kind of stuff. Go back and look at the maps of Europe. I mean, th- those countries are, are much older than we are. They're much further down the road of their ebbs and flows. We're a baby of a nation. If you know somebody 80 years old, and most of us do, you know somebody a third as old as America. I mean, think about that. that there's somebody in your life right now that is a third as old as the United States of America. So to believe that we're going to have 500, 600, 700, 1,000 years of political normalcy and things will remain the same, I mean, it's absurd. There is no example in human history or civilization's history of, of something like us lasting uh, much longer than it's lasted yet. And I still believe that eventually will be the divided states of America and those who believe and ascribe to the liberal worldview that they'll have a place to go. Those of us who believe in a more conservative and limited government worldview will kind of huddle up in in certain places and federalism will reign supreme. See, I think federalism was the safety valve the founders put in place. I think the founders knew that eventually we'd be a complicated, diverse, prosperous nation if we allowed the personal expression to take precedent. Personal liberties and freedoms are going to be, uh, they're going to lead to innovation and technological advancement and and the eradication of disease and prosperity unknown to other places. So I think when the founders implemented a system that rewarded the personal virtue, that allowed for personal expression, they knew it was going to be different. And I think if they look back in retrospect and saw where we are today, some would be surprised, but I think a lot would be, well, I mean, that, that's kind of a bumpy road. That's the bumpy road you're on when you allow people to govern themselves. But at some point in time, we're going to be so deeply divided that you don't have the tolerance for me. I don't have the tolerance for you. You don't have the patience for me. I don't have the patience for you. So instead of raising hell at one another 24-7, why don't we just go our merry ways? You go this way, and there's, there's a safe haven for you. There's a place you can execute your way of life without worrying about people like me. And there's a place I can go over here and execute my way of life without worrying about um, people like you. I mean, why are we going to make one another, one another miserable for eternity? We're not. I'm telling you, there will be a day. I mean, I probably won't live to see it, but we are the deeply divided. I'm talking about not, I'm, I'm not talking about in theory. I'm talking about in practicality. We're going to be, you know, you go your way, I'll go mine. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Let's go back to Barry's call. There, there are some things we can decide on our own. There are other things we're at the mercy of. Remember, we talked earlier about Dabo and NIL and um, and transfer portal. Doesn't mm-hmm. much care for it, but he's got to adjust and adapt and accept that it is what it is. Whether you know, I built my program on a set of criteria. Now the game has changed. I got to revisit the way we do things here. We still stand for family and culture and loyalty. And I mean, I get all that. But, but Transfer Portal and NIL have completely changed the, um, the preconceived notions people had about the way they were going to run their programs. So we talked a second ago about the, uh, the new era of voting, you know, ballots out, ballots in. I mean, that's, that's the most important thing in America today. It's not about candidate quality. It's not about, you know, um, what sort of messaging and how much money you spend on media. I mean, all of those matter to some degree, but in essence, it's about, but, but here's the question we have to ask ourselves, and I'd love to hear from our listeners as it relates to this. The, the Republican Party, go back to Ronald McDaniel and Dave Bossie, you know, and um, uh, what's her name, Hamid Dillon, 
um, maybe Lee Zeldin. I mean, they're, they're asking for permission to leave the RNC, the Republican National Committee. Does that matter? Well, it doesn't matter as much as the candidates do, but it does matter. I mean, they build an infrastructure. They build, they build a kind of a network of donors and, and grassroots activists. Um, but, but here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. And I think you've got to be bluntly honest with ourselves. Um, I'm trying to do that today. There, there are a lot of things that, that I love about America first. I mean, I really and truly do. I've never, ever felt as energetic about a political movement or, or ideology as I do anti-globalist, anti-interventionist, pro-worker, pro-family, America first political party. I don't get to draw up the agenda, but if I did, it would be, it would lean heavily toward anti-intervention, anti-globalism. Um, I mean, I did be moderate on free trade. I mean, I get the fact that we have to trade with our neighbors. I accept that as a reality. We don't have to outsource the jobs. I mean, we can sell and buy goods from other nations. I accept that. But it would be, um, I mean, the majority of my mindset, if, if somebody said, okay, Ken, here's the pen and here's the paper, you draw what America first needs to look like 15 years from now, it would have a strong anti-China bias. It would have a pretty significant anti-intervention bias. It would, um, it would be, I mean, I'll say this, one of the few Republicans willing to say it, it would be anti-American imperialism. I don't buy into that. I just don't believe that America has the right nor the authority to tell nations around the world how to conduct their business. I just don't. I mean, I think we trade with people, we interact with people, we negotiate with other countries, um, we, we share the world stage to some degree. Um, do we police the world when it's required? But we don't go around looking for opportunities to export what I refer to as American imperialism. That's the big exception I had with McCain and the Bushes. I mean, I think McCain and the Bushes believed that it's our job every day to wake up looking under every rock to find out where American imperialism is lacking and the military-industrial complex can flex its muscles. I mean, I'm just not that kind of Republican. Um, I'm more in line with Rand Paul. Uh, so it would be kind of a, a heavy anti-China China movement. It would be... Um, somewhat anti-intervention, somewhat anti-globalist. It wouldn't be um, isolationist, but it would be placing the American worker and the American family as its priority. When we pass a piece of legislation out of Congress and it's signed into law by the president and my name's on it, it's going to be pro-worker, pro-family. What's good for the American worker, what's good for the American family. It's not that easy. I mean, you can get real convoluted and complicated when you try to create policy that advantages the American worker, advantages of the American family. I don't get to draw up the agenda. I don't get to build a model of which the next 15 years of this, you know, um, thread or strain within the Republican Party. But what we've got to decide, guys, are we willing to lose? And, and what are we willing to lose? And how often are we willing to lose? How many of you believe we could have done better than Herschel Walker in Georgia? Of course we could have. I mean, there's no question about it. Trump kind of sort of handpicked Walker out of Georgia. I'm not saying, I mean, Herschel's still the greatest football player I've ever seen in my life. But I don't think anybody believed that he was the most exceptional Republican senatorial candidate in a state of, what, 10 million people, 9 million people? I mean, there's somebody out there that could have done a better job on the hustings than Herschel Walker. Um, probably runs the 40 faster than... 99% of Senate members today at 60 years old. But but you see where I'm headed. Um, Blake Masters. I think Blake Masters had a chance, or I thought I was wrong. I thought Masters had a chance to be one of the trailblazers, along with J.D. Vance uh, and Josh Hawley and, you know, some of the other. I thought he had a chance to be kind of the, um, the intellectual underpinning 
that, that it's going to take to get America first to a next level of acceptance. But, but here's the problem, guys. Um, the 2022 midterms were not a, a, an absolute and abject failure. I mean, they weren't. Uh, the Republicans gained control of the House by the slimmest of margins. I think it's, what, eight, seven or eight or nine, but it's still a majority. I mean, they will chair the committees. What happened yesterday in Georgia will allow the Republicans, or excuse me, the Democrats to now chair the senatorial or the Senate subcommittees and full committees um, because they've got a majority. At 50-50, you share some of that responsibility because nobody has a majority. In other words, the, the vice president breaks the ties, but she doesn't get to choose who chairs the committee. So now it's 51-49. Every committee in the Senate will be chaired by a Democrat. I mean, that's unfortunate. But right now, the only juice the Republicans have is chairing the House committees. Jim Jordan and Judiciary is particularly interesting to me. But, but I want to go back to the, here's what we've got to decide. And I can't do this. I mean, I've kind of made my mind up, but I can't make your mind up for you. But, but if we believe that the 2022 midterms were somewhat of a disappointing um, outcome, I mean, I think we all share that sentiment. I mean, the projections of 40 House seats, 54-46 margin in the Senate, I mean, it didn't come to pass. Who's responsible for that? I mean, I think Ronald McDaniel shares some blame. I think Donald Trump shares some blame. I think Mitch McConnell shares some blame. I think Herschel Walker shares some blame. Doctor, I mean, there's a lot of people to point fingers at. But what we've got to determine, we know, I mean, if you're an America Firster, you know the GOP establishment has from day one tried to sabotage and eventually destroy America First. The GOP is not an anti-China political party. It's not an anti-globalist political party. It's not an anti-interventionist political party. I don't know that it's fully invested anymore in American imperialism. I mean, it seems to me there's been somewhat of a drawback, and I think Trump affected both parties in that. I mean, I really believe the legacy of Trump, I mean, I'm talking about the scholarly legacy. I'm not talking about the Fox News talk radio legacy of Trump. I mean, he'll be the political bulldozer, right? I mean, that's the way we'll always remember Trump, whether he wins in 24 or not. But, but I think the intellectual argument to make of Trump is he's changed the ideas of both political parties on China and American imperialism. I mean, I do believe this. I mean, I think he shaped both political parties. That's hard to do, guys. I mean, even some of the Democrats now are talking about, ah, China's not to be trusted. I mean, China is a serious geopolitical adversary that wants to be the single, that's the key word, the single and preeminent superpower on this planet. They don't want to share that stage like Russia did with the U.S. They want to abolish us for, or basically um, kick us off of that stage that includes a superpower and a superpower to be in China. So that is a very complicated and, um, and, and it'll be an elongated debate. I mean, a very, very, very extended debate. And it'll have, um, it'll have ebbs and flows and twists and turns as, as most of those macro issues have. But, but the GOP has from day one tried to sabotage and destroy America first. We know the Democrats do it. That's their job. I mean, the Democrats' job is to beat Republicans. I mean, if you're a Democrat voter, you want to beat Republicans at the ballot box. But the Republican Party internally has tried to sabotage a movement that still has a lot of support and a high level of energy. Not as much as it did. Let's accept that. I mean, there was a high-water mark in the Trump phenomenon, the America First movement. I mean, if the America First movement still had the, the degree of energy it had in 16, it would have at least gone two and two in those four swing states. Masters, Laxalt, Oz, or, or Walker, two of those four would have won. 
But there's been some waning. There's been some convincing of people that this is not worth it. I mean, it's not worth throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're Republicans. At some point in time, we got to kind of find our senses and come back to center. Uh, where's the North Star? Well, here's what we've got to decide. And this is a, um, I thought about it driving over this morning. Um, if we get a year down the road, and it's pretty obvious that this internal squabble remains between Trump and the GOP hierarchy, and there's no way for Trump to win, and there's no way that there's no way for them to beat Trump in a primary, and there's no way for Trump to win a general. In other words, if the Trump voters say as to the primary um, apparatus, he's our guy. We know we've got enough to win the primary. We're willing to lose the general with Trump. And the GOP voters say as well, we did everything we could to sabotage and destroy. But Trump still got 40% of the electorate. We can't win without him. He can't win without us. And we just simply, we're not giving in, and they're not giving in. Does Trump run as an independent? I mean, at some point in time in the next year, does Donald Trump say, and, and his followers, the, the America first element within, I don't have any America first to leave if Trump left, but I think that's the, I mean, that's the trillion dollar, the multi-billion hmm. dollar question. I mean, why does Trump run if he can't win, why does the GOP um, embrace? I mean, you see where I'm headed. I mean, there's this once again. It, are we going to try and return the favor? And this is where I get real confused. If I'm an America firster, am I willing to vote for an independent who has very little chance to win, but will allow the Democrat to have a much better chance of winning? Am I willing? I mean, that's what they've been willing to do. I mean, that's what the Lincoln Project and some of the never-Trumpers have been willing to do, and it's all over the country. I mean, we know it. The data shows it clearly. I mean, the data clearly shows that people voted for Kemp and not Walker. People voted for um, Kerry Lake and not Blake Masters. I mean, that, you know, that there's a line of demarcation. It's, it's different for everybody, but but it's not the same for anybody. And 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 the, in the good old days, you know, when, when your team chose its fearless leader, in other words, when Arizona voters chose their Senate candidate, everybody kind of circled the wagons and said, okay, I don't like the way it turned out, but he's my guy. I mean, he's, he's the Republican. It's a duopoly. I have two choices. It's binary. Um, it's either Blake Masters or um, the, the astronaut Kelly, and, and I'm, I'm a Republican. Well, that didn't happen in 2020 and 2022. We know Republicans either took a pass or did I mean, what I can't imagine, and that is vote for the Democrat. We know that happened. So, so why wouldn't the America Firsters, if you see the writing on the wall in a year from now, why wouldn't we gather together and say, okay, we're abandoning the GOP. We're starting our own political independent movement. Call it America First. Call it MAGA. Call it, call it whatever you choose to. It will never win the presidency, but it will always stop a Republican from winning. That's the leverage. That's the negotiating tool. And, you know, I mean, it's hard to win elections. you got to get on ballots. you got to, you're a third-party candidate. You don't have the infrastructure. I mean, I get it. I mean, I get the advantage that two political parties have over everybody else that tries to run. I mean, the Democrats have built a hellacious infrastructure. The Republicans have built a very respectable infrastructure. I mean, somebody who runs as an independent is kind of doing it without any of that infrastructure. But Trump is a unique political animal. I mean, he has that name ID. He has about 160 or 70 or 80 million dollars banked. I mean, you're legitimate. I mean, if you've got a couple of hundred million bucks in name ID, 
you're you're much different than anybody ever had. Well, Ross Perot would have been the exception. Perot got about 17, 18% of the vote. I think Trump gets 35% of the vote in a general. I think he gets 40 in a primary. I think he gets 35-ish in a general. 35 may be more than the GOP nominee gets. In other words, if you've got Larry Hogan, the governor of Maryland, the darling of the establishment, I mean, he's the, um, he, he's the, uh, he's the return to normal. I mean, if you're a uh, GOP establishment or status quo voter, I mean, Hogan is the, um, I mean, he's the sanity restored. So you've got Hogan as a Republican. You've got Trump as a America firster independent, and you've got uh, Biden as a Democrat. Biden gets 53, 4% of the vote. Trump gets 30% of the vote, maybe 31 or two, and Hogan gets 20-ish. I mean, if they, if they, if on day one, the GOP decided to try and destroy, sabotage the America First movement, how much longer do America Firsters take it? I mean, you're in a party that a lot of people just don't welcome you. I mean, you're the majority. I mean, you are the majority of this party. I mean, I've said it before and I'll say it again. It's two to one. I mean, there is no battle for the heart and soul of the GOP. But the one-third that didn't get their way have decided to not circle the wagons when it should be time, and historically has been time to circle the wagons. They just bail. They either don't vote or they vote for the Democrat. You can't stop that. I mean, there's nothing Rev and I can do to a never-Trumper to convince them you're, 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 you're not doing the right thing by the country. I mean, they've got a right to make that decision, and in two election cycles, they made that consistent decision. What makes you think it's different in 24? What makes you think Trump has charisma enough to convince the never-Trumpers to not take a pass in 24 as they did in 20 and as they did again in 22? Why beat your head against a post is what I'm saying. Why not just bail? Why not take your ball and go home? I mean, they kind of sort of took their ball and went home. Why not take your ball and go home and see if you can go into a three-way battle and get more votes than the Republican nominee? I mean, that would be the accomplishment. I mean, that, that would be the first time that I can ever remember. I mean, Perot got, what, 17 or 18% of the vote? Mm-hmm. I mean, Trump would get twice that. I mean, he would get 32 33%. There's no way he gets to 40 in a general. Forget it. I mean, I can hear people saying Trump could win as the third party. No, hell no. Doesn't have any chance at all to win third party. But you do begin to destroy and sabotage 100 years or 50 years of what I'll call modern intellectual conservatism. Let's go to the phone. Mike in Darlington. Morning, Mike. I tell you what, uh, Ken, uh, you got too much common sense for your own good. That's uh, absolutely right. And uh, we we dropped the ball for decades. You know, I knew that uh, the Republican Party had gone completely crazy when uh, Mitt Romney up there at the end of the campaign using special uh, with what's his name, Reince Prince or Reince Priebus. Reince Prince, uh, what uh, he was uh, he was up there riding around North Dakota with its three electoral votes in the last two weeks of the campaign in a bus, and I said. He he just flew the campaign into the dirt there. I said, this is what, this is um, a a candidate that's not a candidate. He's a, he's a kamikaze candidate and he's, he's uh, wrecking our own uh, carriers. 
I don't know what in the world these people are thinking, but when you have gotten to the crazy point where you have a Supreme Court justice now, a nominee, say she doesn't know the difference between a man and a woman, and she's nominated because she is a woman, that is uh, beyond insanity. And we have neglected our education so terribly that people can't count, but they can still count a little bit. They can tell that prices have gone up. But they, uh, they, and we have neglected the Bill of Rights. That Bill of Rights, you should be required to memorize at least half of it before uh, you graduate from high school. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937. Take a break. Back in just a few. 843-661-0937. You yawn during the break, not when you're going back on the air. <laughs> got a big yawn in right as we were going back on the air. Do you, do you need to air. take a nap no, I, got, I got good sleep last night. I mean, I went to bed pretty early last night. Somebody said they stayed up and checked their phone and kept checking, checking the tallies. The, the, the biggest lead Walker had was about 30,000 votes, and I had a couple of folks texting me, hey, what's happening here? I thought you said he's going to lose. And I said only 5% of the votes in DeKalb County have come in. DeKalb's holding their votes. And uh, I was texting with Robert about what might happen. And Robert kept saying false flag. I mean, this lead won't last. Mm-hmm. I mean, Walker did a little better than we thought he would, but still not enough. I think he lost by, what, 70,000-ish uh, votes somewhere thereabout. Um, not not a good day in Georgia. So I was thinking a little bit about this. Trump runs as an independent. First mm-hmm. of all, does anybody get to 270? Well, let me ask you a question, Rev. How scenario? much longer are you willing for the GOP to sabotage a political movement inside a political party that outnumbers those trying to sabotage it? I'm sick of it. Okay. I'm done with it. So, so what would you do? Would you bolt? Yeah, if, if that was the choice. I mean, I mean I, if the choice were Hogan, Trump, or Biden. Trump. Okay, fair enough. So, All so, about it. So here's the best case scenario. That's what you asked. Mm-hmm. The best case scenario would be Biden gets 45% of the vote, maybe 43% of the vote. Biden wins uh, the the uh, the, po- the popular vote. I mean, he doesn't get 50%, but he gets a larger plurality than anybody. Biden gets 43, 44, 45% of the vote. Trump gets 30-ish. Might get 31 or 2, but I think it's closer to 30. Um, the uh, the Republican establishment candidate, and I'm using Hogan as an example because he's always out there, you know, saying we got to return the sanity and get our senses about us and find our, our political North Star. Mm, okay. um, so Hogan gets 25 simply because he's a Republican. Um, I went back and looked during the break. Ross Perot did not win a state. He came in second in Maine and Utah. The high water mark for Perot was Maine at 30%. I think he got 27% of the vote in Utah. But but the best case scenario is here. Um, Biden gets 44% of the vote. Trump gets 31% of the vote. The Republican Hogan gets 25% of the vote. And nobody gets 270. Remember, we're not having, it's not a, uh, a plurality election. It's an electoral college election. So Trump wins West Virginia. Trump wins South Carolina. Trump wins uh, Montana. Trump wins uh, Wyoming. Trump wins a handful of um. Uh, Ohio? I don't know. That's kind of an interesting case study. I mean, could America first beat the Republican Party and the Democrat Party in uh, in in Ohio? I don't know. I mean, I don't have any idea. And I've got no idea what kind of deal the establishment in the Republican Party would cut with Democrats. Because once again, they're not in it for you or I. They're in it for power. I mean, that's what they're all about. They're not trying to do right by the American people. They're trying to hold on to power. That's what the Lincoln Project is investing in. The Lincoln Project isn't patriotic. 
The Lincoln Project doesn't love America more than you do. The Lincoln Project need trains to run on time so their skids can be greased and the money can be direct deposited in their bank. And Trump threatened that. I mean, he was a change agent. What do you mean he's a change agent? We've had this system built. I mean, we've maintained it. We've cultivated it. We've done everything we're supposed to do. What do you mean this guy's going to change the way we do things? No, he's not. There's no way we're going to allow that to happen. So you form a uh, political action committee and you have these former Republican consultants, you know, just say anything, Um, you know, but it's not about patriotism or politics. It's about power. It always is about money, influence and power. But best case scenario is Trump gets to 31. He keeps Biden at 43 or four. Hogan's at about 25 or six and nobody gets to two seven. And if no candidate receives a majority of electoral votes, which is 270, then the House of Representatives elects the president from those three. Now, I doubt very seriously they'd vote for Trump. But what a message you send to the duopoly. I mean, you know, the the years and years and years of establishment world order that we have basically um, bowed to and, and given in. Uh, on behalf of, I mean, that, that, that's the, I mean, to me, that is the most positive outcome. And, and I can't answer that question for everybody. I mean, as a Republican voter, how long are you willing to allow the, some of the leadership of your party to stop you from re-energizing a group or being a part of a, uh, kind of changing the concept of a political party? Um, they've done it to you. I mean, why wouldn't you decide at some point in time to do it to them? I mean, if the if the establishment Republican has four, three election cycles, uh, two, uh, three, 18, 20, 22, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the most recent three election cycles, the reason Republicans underperformed was not an overperformance by Democrats. It was the fact that Republicans who normally vote Republican chose not to or voted for the Democrats. I mean, at 18, 20, and 20, how many election cycles will you tolerate that before you jump ship and say, okay, I give up. I mean, America first is two or three, but we don't, I mean, we can't win without you. So what do you need? What do you want? I mean, you know, we'll put you back in charge. Can we have a crumb here or there? Uh, No, there's no way I'd sign up for that. No way in this world. I would bolt. I would form an independent America first party. I would go into that party knowing that I'm not going to win many elections, if any, but I'm going to get about 30% of the vote and I'm going to stop Republicans from winning. Now, the big winner here is Democrats. I mean, there's no doubt right. about it. But, but that's, that's not good. Well, I mean, I can live with that. I mean, I can live with a Democrat beating me. I can't live with a fellow Republican beating me. I mean, that's my concern. I can go to bed at night and sleep well knowing that I lost to a Democrat. But it's hard to go to bed knowing you lost because of some of the own, your own brethren basically said thank you, but no thank you to a movement that has the majority of people. Political parties don't exist to consume power or assume power. Political parties exist to serve the public. And two-thirds of Republican primary voters say, this is the agenda we want. We want an anti-American imperialism agenda. We want an anti-China mindset. Well, we don't like globalism. We don't like all this intervention. But, but the party has said, we're going to have to wait you out. I mean, we'll hold on tooth and nail. We'll do whatever we've got to do. We'll dig in deeper than you will. We'll hold on longer than you will. We'll play games that you aren't familiar with, but we're not going to give in to the orthodoxy or mindset. And that's conceptually where we are 
today. And I think if we get a year down the road, and it's pretty obvious that Trump just didn't go, I mean, it's not going to happen. I mean, they, you know, um, Trump fatigue syndrome, we talked a little bit about that yesterday. I mean, he makes a lot of mis- uh, unforced errors. We know that. What well, We know that. But he can be the vessel of which we provide the most chaotic presidential election in modern American history. And I, for one, would accept that. I don't know that I'd embrace it because I don't like Biden getting reelected or Kamala Harris or Gavin Newsom or one of these other, you know, liberal presidents. I think that's bad for the country. But I'm just tired of a minority of my party subjecting the majority to what they've chosen to subject us to. And I think Walker was probably the icing on the cake. I mean, give Kemp credit. I mean, you know, uh, Kemp did everything he could. I mean, from what I'm gathering, Brian Kemp left his infrastructure in place for an additional month to help Walker win. Walker didn't have much of a, um, a political infrastructure. And by that, I mean grassroots and knocking on doors and, you know, making phone calls. I mean, the, the traditional politicking. And um, in a state that was going to be that close, that helped Walker. That probably is why Walker was projected to lose 53-47, ends up losing about 51-49-ish. I mean, it was part of the Kemp infrastructure. But here's my question. And we saw that, and we saw Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz, Nikki Haley, and those types that were in Georgia trying to help. But where was the rest of the Republican establishment? Where was Mitch McConnell on this? Well, I think McConnell invested. I mean, I think they spent money okay. there. Yeah, but I think McConnell spent money there. Didn't hear there. much. Well, I mean, you didn't hear much, but but I think McConnell, to his credit, I think it was seven and a half or eight million dollars. I mean, okay. there was about eighty million bucks spent. Um, Warnock spent about twice as much as Walker did. But I don't think we can throw Mitch under the bus on this one. Now, now we can throw Mitch under the bus on a lot of other ones. You know, the Blake Masters in particular, mm-hmm. and uh, the Murkowski race out in in Alaska. See, the problem with where we are today is fifty one forty nine. The the Democrats play a lot more defense in twenty four. I think they're defending twenty three states seats. Uh, one's in Montana, one's in West Virginia. I mean, there are about six seats that'll be very much in play, and and the Republicans could win three or four of those seats. Um, will Trump be on the ballot as the Republican nominee or not? Don't have any idea. But 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 the point I'm trying to make, or the picture I'm trying to paint, is it's pretty obvious to me by now that the Republican establishment are not coming home. I mean, they're they're just not. I mean, they've convinced themselves that it's um it's against every I don't know political rule they've established for themselves to get in bed with America first. So they're just not going to do that. They proved it in 18, and you wondered, okay, 20, will they come along? No, 22, uh, probably even more so in 22. So it's really exaggerating itself or exacerbating itself. I mean, it's, it's becoming worse and worse and worse when you look at the number of Republicans choosing to either stay home or or vote for the Democrat. I mean, I, th- I think we, we did the math on um, on Pennsylvania. We did the math uh, in, in Arizona. Uh and then you can't escape that reality, Reb. You can't you can't deny the fact that Laxalt lost in Arizona, excuse me, in Nevada, Masters lost in um in Arizona, in Pennsylvania, Oz loses, and now Walker loses in Georgia. And those were the Trump races. I mean, those really and truly were the ones that had his name uh, you know, most closely attached to. I mean, I know he, he nominated or excuse me, endorsed a lot of House members. I mean, I've got the numbers here. Uh, Trump endorsed uh, 200 and I think it was 225 of 241 in the House races. Uh, but but a lot of those were gimmies. I mean, they were layups. They were in races that um heavily Republican-leaning. In other words, if Trump endorses the Republican, we know how valuable that endorsement is in a primary. It's just it's two-to-one Republican voters over 
So even if some of the Republicans stayed home or voted for the Democrat, it's still not enough. So that 225 of 241, that's a bit misleading. It's a big number, but it's still a bit misleading. And I think in the four races that really have his fingerprints on, he's 0-4. And that's bad. I mean, that, you know, but, but once again, that leads me to believe that as we head into, mid, uh, head into the presidential cycle, and it starts in January, I mean, as soon as Congress right. um, convenes, that, that's when we kind of get to work on the presidential cycle. Where do we go from here? And I just think the most likely place to go, the most reasonable, stop fighting with one another. What did we talk with Barry a second ago? You go your way, I'll go mine. Um, you don't have enough to win. In fact, I think I've got more of you. I mean, that would be the ultimate embarrassment to me, to the Republican establishment. If Trump ran as an independent and they branded themselves America firsters and you and I bolted and Freehold bolted and two thirds of our listeners bolted and went to vote for the not Republican, but America first independent candidate. And he ends up with 30 percent of the vote, 31 percent. The Republican only gets 25. Now, but he takes some from Biden. I mean, I believe that. I think there's some working class Democrats, some African-American Democrats, some Hispanic Democrats who say, I don't want to be a part of either party. I think there would be some intrigue. See, see, that's kind of the wild card. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, thinking out loud. Mm-hmm. The wild card could be those people who say they're tired of both parties. And all of a sudden, they've got a third option. Now, the third option is a pretty volatile political figure. <laughs> he's pretty abrasive, pretty blunt, pretty um, polarizing, but he's third party nonetheless. How, what percentage of Republicans and Democrats who have said for a decade or two or three, I'm tired of the duopoly. I'm tired of having that binary choice. I want an option. I want a third choice. Well, you got a third choice now. Yeah, but it's Trump. I mean, I don't want to vote for him because he's too crazy. He's too erratic, too um, unpredictable. Well, I mean, you've said for years and years and years, this is what you wanted. You wanted a third choice. Here's the third choice. So that 31%, I mean, it's not going to 40. I mean, under, under no scenario does Trump get to 40. But he could... If, if that reality came into play, he could get closer to 35, and that gets Biden closer to 40. I mean, what if we had a three-way race between Hogan, Trump, and Biden, where Biden got 40% of the vote, Trump got 35% of the vote, and Hogan got 25% of the vote? I mean, that to me, that's a better America. I mean, that, there's genuine options there. Are you a liberal? Are you a conservative? Are you a pro-worker, pro-family, you know, um, non-intervening, non-globalist believing, um, you know, person who doesn't want to be associated with either party? Where would the independents go? Remember, we've taught historically the country's been 40 Republican, 40 Democrat, 20 independent. I mean, I'm painting with a broad brush. It's not exactly that. The Democrat Party's a bigger party politically across the nation. But, but I mean, for argument's sake, let's say it, for, for years and years, it was 40, 40, and 20. Now it's 30, 30, and 40. Now, I don't believe 40% of Americans are, in, are independents. They like to call themselves independents. They like to sit at the bar or coffee shop and say, when, when you talk politics, they'll say, well, I'm not a Republican or a Democrat. I'm an independent. Well, how do you vote? Well, the last 24 elections, I voted for the Democrat. You know, but I'm not a Democrat. I'm an independent. Well, how about you? I mean, I'm an independent too. Who did you vote for in the last 10 presidential elections? I voted for the Republican. No, you're not an independent. You're a, <laughs> but, but you like calling yourself especially if you're Starbucks, you like calling yourself, you know, an independent. So, um, but where would that 40% that profess to be, I mean, it's probably 20 or 25%. What do they do? Are they true to their roots? Do they vote for an independent candidate? I mean, there's a way for Trump to get to 35. I think the odds of him winning as an independent 
are about as good as his odds of him winning as a Republican because the Republican voter, the establishment Republican voter, I mean, there's a body of work now. There's a history to analyze. They're not going to vote for him. They didn't in 18. He's not on the ballot. I get it, but his candidates were. They didn't vote for him in 18. They didn't vote for him in 20. They didn't vote for him in 2022. What makes you think they're going to vote for him in 2024? Let's take a break. We'll be back in just a few. Okay, I've given us an option of what we can do. Here's what we can't do. We got to stop with this. I mean, I read a story yesterday in The Federalist. Good publication. Molly Hemingway, editor-in-chief. She's a frequent guest on Fox News. But they were they were discussing this Jim Baker or James Baker, you know, the FBI guy that went to work with Twitter. He got exited yesterday. Uh, we called it fire to the country, but Elon Musk <laughs> said he got Elon exited uh, from the Twitterverse or the Twitter sphere. But um, but I read an article yesterday in Federalist that got, just got me frustrated. Not angry. I mean, I get it. People have their own opinions and their own perspectives. But but it's it's a it's a story about if Musk wants free speech, he needs to follow freedom of reach. And it really is the gist of the story is shadow banning, and and Musk has not cleaned up that enough to um. We got to stop this purity, guys. I mean, we just really and truly do. The libertarian bias within the Republican Party has to begin to kind of adjust itself. I mean, I get that you want the world to be a certain way. I understand that. But but the world is what the world is. And you've got to accept some of these realities. Now, once again, I'm not willing to accept as member, as an America firster, I'm in the majority. I mean, I'm two-thirds. I have a right to stand my ground and tell the establishment Republican, you know, not no, but hell no. I mean, this is, you know, we are the dominant force in the Republican Party today. It's your job and responsibility if you want to win elections to come along. I mean, I can't command you to do that. I can't demand of you. Um, you, you know, you're a Republican. We're going to incarcerate you if you don't vote for the Republican candidate. I mean, we don't live in that kind of, of nation. But when I read this article and I'm thinking about everything Elon Musk has done to liberate Twitter and to create a social media platform that people like me believe we're getting a much fairer shake. We're seeing things that we didn't see before. We're allowed to tweet things that we weren't allowed to tweet before. But this Federalist writer is basically saying that Musk hadn't gone far enough because he's shadow bans. He's still doing some things against some people that are, you know, against the First Amendment. And they're talking about the banning of Alex Jones. Remember, Alex Jones is the InfoWars founder who was, um, I think, fined, what, $1.4 $1. billion. billion dollars, yeah. I mean, I don't know if he's got that much money. It's a lot of money. He filed um, bankruptcy yeah, last weekend. But there was a Sandy Hook defamation suit verdict that he was on the bad end of. Um, and they asked Elon about this, about, you know, Alex Jones not being allowed to be on Twitter. Um, and he said, and I quote, I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics, or fame. He will remain um, deplatformed. I mean, that's Musk. He's the boss. He has a right to, to say that. But some within the Republican circle, the libertarian bias within the Republican circle, are, are forgetting all the good Elon's done and saying, basically saying that Elon's not doing what he said he would do because he calls himself a free speech absolutist, and um, and he's not. I mean, he's, he's a fraud. I mean, they actually go so far as to say he's a fraud. I mean, the guy's <laughs> not who he says he is. Well, I mean, to, to me, guys, if we're going to try to make this person happy or that mindset happy— We'll be the most irrelevant political party in the history of mankind. We got to stop that. Well, we got to know where to say enough. Elon Musk is doing 
more for the conservative movement than anybody we've elected except Donald Trump in the last 40 years. But to a writer at the Federalist, they're not doing enough because they're still practicing shadow banning. And once again, Alex Jones being on Twitter or not, I mean, that's, that's, you know, I'm not the one to make that call. I mean, I believe in the free speech. I believe that Alex Jones has a right to say things however reckless and careless they are. But, but Elon Musk owns Twitter. And I think his response is very reasonable when he says, I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics, or fame. He will not be allowed to be on Twitter. I mean, is that a, is that a reason to throw Elon under the bus? I mean, that, you can say we have a disagreement there. And I'm not sure I agree with everything Elon said there. But all of a sudden, he's the guy that's not doing what he said he was doing? From a, uh, and, and we got to stop that. I mean, I understand clickbait. I understand trying to get hits. I understand a, a writer for the, um, for the Federalist trying to be more popular than the, the, the other writers for the Federalist. You don't see the Democrats make that error. They don't self-inflict those kind of wounds. And we got to stop that. We've got to understand that there has to be some guardrail that stops us from going that far. I mean, are we going to all of a sudden be arguing about whether or not Alex Jones should be allowed to be on Twitter? I mean, that's what we get ourselves um, embroiled in. I mean, that's what we're baited in. Next thing you know, instead of talking about what Biden's not doing or doing, we're talking about, you know, in Republican circles, there's a big debate about whether Alex Jones should be allowed on Twitter or not. Do you really think we need that debate? I mean, does that help beat Democrats? Does that help win elections? Does that move conservatism forward in the political spectrum? No, absolutely not. So shame on this reporter at the Federalist for trying to pit, you know, conservative voices, conservative natured people against Elon Musk, who once again has probably done more for free speech in the last month than any Republican or conservative has in the last 50, 60, 75 years. 843-661-0937. We'll take a break. We'll be back in just a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Have you seen this? Uh, last night I started seeing these tweets. You know, Twitter is so entertaining and watching Elon's tweets and the You're back about the and poser. Forth. Elon posing as a free speech <laughs> oh, absolutist. No, no, he's So the Federalist says... <laughs> He's he's good with me. I'll okay. tell you that. I just love it. Twitter's become so much more entertaining and interesting now. And you kind of feel like you're, you know, able to I don't I don't post a lot on there, but I do like reading and certainly there's a lot more out there. But so we talked about James Baker, the FBI guy, the Twitter counsel, whatever he does. Come to find out he was still working at Twitter and he was apparently vetting the release of these Twitter files last week. Uh Elon figured out that that he was involved in that and he exited him from the company. Now you talked about James Baker yesterday and here this news breaks late last night. I just had a feeling that I mean, his, his name is going to be a very relevant. I mean, you're going to hear the name James Baker a lot. I mean, for, for the next six months, get used to it because the first thing, the first two questions that the Republicans need to aggressively address are, are the origin of the virus and FBI corruption. I mean, that those are the two central issues that I would vote. I mean, the Republicans don't have a chance to um, advance legislation. They just don't. They got a small majority of the House. They've got a, um, a minority in the Senate. They don't control the White House. So executing policy is going to be impossible. That there is no way in Hades that Republican ideals or principles are going to make their way through the bowels of government, the organizational institution that we call Congress. Forget it. Ain't going to happen. <laughs> Okay. So what do we do? We, to me, the origin of the virus 
the efficacy of the vaccine, the the FBI corruption. I mean, those are three issues that we've never fully vetted, but let's do. Let's continue the January 6th commission. Let's reappoint certain members. Let's allow uh, Hakeem Jeffries to put on whomever he chooses to put on. But um, I was thinking about it writing over this morning, and I'm sure there are more. I don't know that I could have ever named seven people work, work with the FBI. I mean, imagine this, Rev. The, the average voter in America today knows the name. I mean, help me here. Do you know the name um, Jim Comey? Sure, of course. Andy McCabe. Yep. Jim Baker. James Baker. Yep. Peter Strzok. Mm-hmm. Lisa Page. That's right. Kevin Kleinsmith. Mm-hmm. Christopher Wray. Yep. The average American voter knows the name of seven people <laughs> who work for the FBI <laughs> because they've been found to involve themselves in the affairs of elections. But imagine that, guys. Imagine we live in a nation where the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, is not you know, um, coercing someone or trying to set a perjury trap for someone. They're actually placing their thumbs on the um, on the scales of an election to influence the outcome. That's bizarre to me. Now, here's the question. You want to really go conspiracy theory 101? Here's the question. Did James Was James Baker responsible for masterminding the FBI plan to make sure Joe Biden won? I mean, I said this is the ultimate conspiracy theory. So did Baker at the FBI work with big tech and the media to make sure Biden wins? I didn't say put his hands or put his thumb on the scale. To make sure Joe Biden won. We know who Joe Biden was running against. When when Biden wins, did somebody in the administration tell Baker and a representative at Twitter, we need to clean this up? And the best way to clean it up is for Baker to leave the FBI and go be general counsel at Twitter. Now, once again, extreme conspiracy theories, but but that's playing it out to the nth degree. Did James Baker, as an employee of the Federal Bureau of Investigation, was he tasked by the Biden administration and the deep state, the cathedral? By the way, on the heels of his role in the FISA warrant and the dossier. Well, I mean, that's why I think he was appointed. This guy has proven he can get it done. I mean, James Baker, there's nothing James Baker won't do. He'll lie to a FISA court judge. I mean, he'll allow Kevin Kleinsmith to be charged with a crime. I mean, one of his surrogates. So Baker's earned his keep. I mean, he's a loyal, I mean, he's a made man in the mob. I mean, you don't have to question whether he'll do it or not. He's proven that he will do it. He will do whatever it takes to make sure the business of Washington is allowed to remain the business of Washington. But here's the conspiracy theory to the extreme. And I'm not saying it did or did not happen, but you got to put it on the table. When Baker earns his keep by you know, doing what he did with the FISA court and, and getting a spot spine on Carter Page and misleading a judge. And ultimately, Kevin Kleinsmith loses his job. I don't think he lost his pension because nobody in government loses their pension. Um, you know, suspended with pay. <laughs> I mean, imagine suspended with pay. How many people in the private sector, how many people in small business USA have ever been suspended with pay? I mean, you, you've had, you know, I mean, people miss work because of a, um, you know, they have an injury or a sickness and they get paid. The business believes they're a wise investment. They're a, a valuable part of the team. But suspended with pay is only reserved for those in the public sector. But but so so, so James Baker is responsible for um, the, the validating of the Russian dossier. 
He convinces the FISA court judge. No, I don't have any idea what happened there. The FISA court judge may have been on the take. I don't know. I mean, we'll never know the answer to that. We've never investigated that. But we know that Kevin Kleinsmith altered a document. I mean, an FBI official, and I'm not talking about a rank and file guy, you know, waiting on the, uh, the drug dealer to walk out of the convenience store. I'm talking about a guy who has an office in Washington. I mean, he lost his job. He's no longer with the FBI. But under the direction of James Baker, Klein Smith altered a document to make the Russian dossier not look like opposition research. I mean, the Clintons paid for, the DNC paid for this, um, this Steele dossier that we know is opposition research, but, but the FBI presented it as, you know, credible information. I mean, there's a reason to be concerned about Trump and the Russians. I mean, I don't, I don't have any idea. Did the judge say, hey, this looks like opposition research? Wink, wink. Oh, okay. I got it. I got it. I got it. I mean, I don't have any idea if that happened. I mean, it's the business of Washington. If it did, it wouldn't surprise me. But, but Baker earns his keep by pulling that off. I mean, he's kind of the head of the agency or head of the division that, you know, Klein Smith goes down. But I mean, you know, we did the right thing. We stopped Trump from, or we tried to stop Trump from getting elected. He didn't in 16, but we got to certainly disparage his presidency. We got to do things to um, keep him focused and involved so we can't do some of these ridiculous anti-globalist, anti-interventions, pro-worker, pro-family agenda items. I mean, how crazy would that be for Washington to really, you know, prioritize the American worker or American family? So, so Baker earns his stripes. He, he's got a, um, I mean, he's got a bright future ahead of him. He's proven that he's willing to do it. He'll kill the man and put him in the trunk. And he'll cut him up, put him in a barrel if he has to. And he'll throw him in the river. I mean, James Baker is a made man. So Baker then at the FBI is the guy that reaches out to Twitter reaches out probably to Facebook. Remember Zuckerberg on the Joe Rogan podcast said, somebody at the FBI came to see us and said there's going to be this Hunter Biden laptop story and we need to adjust our algorithms to suppress, shadow ban some of that story. Same thing happens at Twitter. So Baker accomplishes that. And then someone at the government, somebody at the Biden administration says, hey, Baker worked with Twitter and Facebook. Elon bought Twitter. We, we need to figure out, Elon's thinking about buying Twitter. And he's one of these free speech freaks. You know, he won't play ball with us. We need to get somebody in at Twitter to address, to vet, to, 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 to suppress, to hide, to retract, to, to delete. I don't know. I don't have any idea what, what they've done. They know that once, when they had the first drop, it went as planned. Um, Matt Taibbi and Barry Weiss said um, that the second was a lot slower. And they questioned, why is it not going as well? Well, we got this lawyer looking at everything to make sure we don't get ourselves in legal jeopardy or legal peril. What's his name? James Baker. <laughs> That's when they said, oh, crap. I mean, okay, we understand now. And then, so hey, I guess somebody's been scrubbing sure, the references to Sure, but you don't have any idea FBI. what he's doing. I mean, nobody knows what he's doing. And then all of a sudden, Elon confronts him because um, Musk is running. I mean, Musk doesn't wake up every day looking for things to do. I mean, Elon Musk has plenty to do, I would imagine. I mean, he lives the very unconventional life of a billionaire. I mean, I'll confess, if I'm a billionaire, I'm in the south of France on a yacht somewhere, you know, enjoying life. That's not the way Elon's wired. I mean, from what I'm gathering, he's on a Zoom call at 5 o'clock in the morning with his leadership team at SpaceX. At about 6.15 or 6.30, he's on another Zoom call with Tesla leadership about the state of affairs there. And then he kind of, I mean, he's devoting some time to Twitter now because there is kind of a um, turnaround that needs to be done. So, so, I mean, I would imagine he's still at SpaceX some. He's still at, um, at Tesla some. But, but he's got a big investment, $44 billion in Twitter. And he wants to make sure, you know, we're getting that train headed in the right 
direction. So he's done more by the seven o'clock hour than the majority of people have done in an entire day. And he doesn't have to, he chooses to do this. Mm -hmm. So he confronts or somebody at Twitter, I don't know if it's Elon or not, sounded to me like it was. He confronts Baker and says, what's up with this man? Baker gives an explanation and Elon says, not sufficient. You know, unconvincing. Pack your stuff up and, and get out of here. So that's interesting to me. But, but, but imagine the credibility Baker had with the cathedral, with the deep state, successful on FISA for getting a FISA court to issue a warrant that allowed, you know, the, um, the, the FBI, the federal government to pile, to spy on the Trump campaign. I mean, nothing came of it, but it was Russian collusion, Russian collusion, Russian collusion. So then he goes back to the FBI. He's done that job, mission accomplished. And then this Hunter Biden story comes out. I believe the Biden campaign went to the FBI and said, we think we may have this problem. And if it gets all over Twitter and Facebook, it could alter the outcome of the election. It's going to be a big deal. Not, not that my son's naked with a prostitute, but, but there's some money transacted and, and it could lead back to me and my brother. So let's do what we can. Hey, that guy, the FBI, the talented guy that'll do whatever we need him to do. Give it to Mikey. Mikey will lead anything. Remember that guy? <laughs> I mean, James mm-hmm. Baker, yeah, that's the guy. So Baker ends he's the, up. He's the fixer. Baker ends up probably going to Facebook. I mean, we know he went to Twitter and says, hey, this story's coming down. You, you guys have 250 million active users. We don't need this out of the public square. We just don't need it. It's bad. Can you help us? Handled. Remember? I mean, that was the response. Handled. So, so when, when Biden gets elected, I think the Biden administration reached out to the FBI and said, we're going to have some internal correspondences between the FBI and Twitter, we might need to clean that up. We believe the best way to clean that up is for Baker to leave the FBI and go to work as Twitter's general counsel. You can't make this up. I mean, this is Hollywood, but it's not. I mean, this is your federal government. This is my federal government. This is the deep state 101. And it's the former leadership of Twitter. Sure, this is the cathedral in action. We're well, going I mean, along. But, but I don't, yeah, but, but, but Twitter, stick with me now. Twitter is a San Francisco based company where 99.6% of the contributions were made to Democrats. They're easy. I mean, you know, I hate to say, I'm not going to say that because I'll get in trouble. I mean, I was about to say something so ridiculous. <laughs> and I'll tell you off the air what I was about to say. Mm-hmm. Okay. But you said, I'm glad you didn't say that on the air because <laughs> we'd probably have to fill out a report. Oh, my if goodness. I'd, they're easy. I'll just leave it there. Mm-hmm. You know, Twitter would have been easy. I'll just leave it. Mm-hmm. That, that would have been easy to convince this is the right thing to do. But it's not what they did. It's not what Vajala Gade or whatever her name is, the head of security and, and you know, uh, shadow banning and whatnot at Twitter. Um, they kind of make up these names in these new companies because you and I don't know what the hell they do. I don't have any idea what they're doing at Twitter. You don't either. Um, algorithms. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, where's the algorithm? Show, show, me, <laughs> show, show me the algorithm. You're talking about that X plus Y? You know. Um, but, but no, I mean, Matt, so, so, so Baker gets fired yesterday. Now, now, you're right. What has he scrubbed? What has he not scrubbed? What is still hanging out? I don't have any idea. Don't, don't have any idea whatsoever. But if I'm Jim Jordan, and in January when I become chair of the House Judiciary Committee, the first name on my list is James Baker. I want to know what in the hell James Baker's been up to since 2016. I want a count-by-count, blow-by-blow articulation of what you've done while the American taxpayer has been paying your salary. I think we owe an in-depth explanation as to where Baker's been and what he's been doing. Now, obviously, he'll plead the fifth or he'll, you know, skirt around the edges. But but imagine the arrogance of somebody in the Biden administration saying to the FBI, 
Hey, Baker helped us with Twitter and Facebook. We got a lot of correspondence just hanging out there, guys. I mean, there was a lot of incriminating or indicting information about me and my family and our financial dealings. We need to clean that up best we know how. And Baker leaves the FBI and takes a job, not at GM, not at Ford, not, not at Microsoft, at Twitter. The very people they coerced into banning or, or um, algorithmically adjusting the, the availability or not of a story. I mean, they actually censored the story. The New York Post broke the story, and they said it was, um, what, what was the language they used? Uh, the the uh, hacking content. Um, in other words, if they think it was hacked content, they have discretion as to whether to make it available or not. Let's go to the phone. Sam in Darlington. Good morning, Sam. Hey, morning. Uh, Ken, I just wanted to, wanted to say an amen to some things you were saying about um, Elon Musk's uh, standing in my eyes went way up. I mean, not that he needs any standing in my eyes, but, but when he appointed uh, or hired Matt Taibbi to do the 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 sort of nitty gritty working through all these internal emails and things and uh, records at Twitter to see just what happened to just you know to see what the documentation is on the uh, collaboration between the FBI and Twitter in uh, in the 2020 election and um, and Taibbi is a journalist he is he got his start in um, investigating financial companies banks and things like that for questionable practices uh, he's not he's not a primarily a political guy he's a kind of an old-fashioned reporter you know digs in and finds out some rich people are doing some things that that they ought to be ashamed of you know he's so he's that kind of guy he's not basically political he's he wants to do good journalism and um fact that Elon Musk hired him to do this thing, I think it speaks uh, very well of Elon Musk. And, and I think it's going to be some good things come out of this. Thank you, Sam. Appreciate that. Yeah, Matt Taibbi, I've always called him, he's kind of a street fighter of a journalist. I mean, he's not afraid of the controversy. He's not afraid of being challenged. He's not afraid of um, digging into a real powerful people's dealings. I mean, he, as as, um, as Sam said, he's, he's kind of earned his name uh, investigating financial matters you know what are the banks doing what are these big corporations doing uh what sort of relationship do they have with the government or not what are they doing with their are they, are they, are they you know are they hiding their money in foreign economy that's kind of the where he made his name but he's known as fearless i mean i think i read somewhere a year or so ago he's kind of a I mean, he's called a street fighter as journalists go and then barry weiss was the female who left the new york times because they were asking her to do certain things that she just said broke her journalistic code of ethics I mean, I can't do that. They're asking me to basically propagandize instead of being a journalist. And she had, the, I guess, the self-awareness to say, I, I just can't do that. I mean, I get we all have political beliefs and, and leanings and biases, but I was hired by the Times to get to the bottom of something, to find out exactly what happened. And you're telling me not to do that anymore, but rather fan the flames of one story or another to, to make it appear to be more important or less important. And she said, I'm just not going to be a part of that. And, and these were very lucrative careers. I mean, these were truly, I mean, you know, I would have married, I don't know what Barry Weiss made, but I mean, if you're a reporter or journalist, well, what is the ultimate goal? I mean, it's to end up writing for the New York Times or the Washington Post or Wall Street Journal. I mean, I would imagine every person who's ever been in a mass comm class 
on a college campus somewhere, uh, you know, believed one day that they, they would, you know, eventually write for the Times, Post, or or Wall Street Journal. And um, I mean, obviously, media's changed today. Uh, you're having more impact or effect on Twitter than you ever will at the um, at the good old New York Times. Take a break. Back in just a few. We wondered where we would be when all the dust settled. Optimistic Republicans, what, three or four months ago, felt the um, the Senate was going to flip. They knew the House was going to flip by a margin of 35 to 40, thought the Senate would flip by at least one or two, maybe as many as three or four. Um, things did not go as planned. In fact, the Democrats have the majority in the U.S. Senate by Anthony Warnock's victory over Herschel Walker yesterday. Executive Director of the American Principles Project and GOP Strategist, Terry Schilling is here. Terry, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Thanks for having me. So what in the world happened, not just <laughs> yesterday, but over the past month, month and a half? Well, I think Republicans uh, went into this election cycle thinking that they could pivot uh, to the economy and to crime and to a lot of the easier issues to talk about away from the issues that they're more afraid of, like abortion and like these cultural issues with our kids' schools and parental rights. And so they pivoted, and the disaster that that caused was, or that led to, is the Democrats were able to brand Republicans as extremists on these cultural issues. So we've got to figure out how to go on offense and how to counterpunch going into the future. Otherwise, we're going to keep having disappointing election cycles like this. Terry, I refer to Trump as cancer and chemo. I mean, I don't know how you're cancer and chemo at the same time, but he basically is. Uh, But when you look at the four pivotal races that we pay closest attention to, Laxalt in Nevada, uh, Masters in Arizona, Oz in Pennsylvania, Walker in Georgia, very unconventional, but America first candidates. What is the takeaway from those four races in particular? Well, I think there were two deficits. So it, it goes back to the, the issue I just outlined where Republicans really didn't go on offense on these issues and counterpunch. They just pivoted the economy and inflation. But there's also the issue of Republicans not competing for the early vote, right? We, we have an, a, a problem with voting by mail. We think it's open to corruption. However, you look at what happened in Arizona where they suppressed the vote on Election Day. They had ballot machines that weren't working on Election Day. I think it was like 25% of ballot machines weren't working, and it caused huge huge lines and delays. So it was easier to vote in Arizona early than it was to vote on Election Day. We have to start using our issues to register voters earlier and then also start getting their votes in earlier because that's what Democrats are doing. That's why Katie Hobbs didn't campaign or do any debates, and that's why John Fetterman didn't care about debating even after having a stroke and having serious, you know, appearances of brain damage. So I, I think we have to utilize the early vote, but then also go on offense and not allow Democrats to to brand us as extreme. I'm a former candidate. You're a GOP strategist. It's hard to accept that it's not about polls or historical trends or messaging or candidate quality or, you know, the traditional get out the vote, candidate debates. I mean, we didn't have debates in some of these races. As a strategist, I mean, as a candidate, I want to win. As a strategist, you want to win. Is it now all about ballots out, ballots in? I mean, does the Republican Party have to invest in an infrastructure, whether they like it or not, that plays ball in those states under the rules that those states have um, have maintained? I absolutely believe that Republicans have to invest in an infrastructure that allows them to start banking ballots before the election while the election season is going on. Otherwise, we're going to keep losing. Look, this was the strategy, right? Like my organization spent millions of dollars in conjunction with other conservative groups to try to take back Arizona, Nevada, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Michigan, so that we could fix the election system. 
Well, that failed because the same broken election system that allows them allows Democrats to harvest ballots and industrialize the election system is still out there. So we now have to start competing if we really want to change the system. And by the way, Democrats will get rid of this early voting as soon as we start winning on it. So the best way to get rid of uh, of these uh, systems that you might have a problem with is to start beating them at their own game. Terry, the one thing you nor I can blame the Democrats for is this um, this division within the party. And I don't want to focus solely on Trump, but there's an America first element within the party. It's kind of an anti-globalist, anti-interventionist. Uh, it's a little bit nationalist in nature, but it's powerful. I mean, it's populist, but it's powerful. And then you've got the traditional National Review reading and subscribing, you know, modern intellectual conservative. We seem to be no closer in putting that puzzle together than we were in the days after 2016. How do we go forward with that imbalance within the party? I, I would not discount the power that a presidential nominee can have on not just the political party, but the entire country, right? You, you, every now and then when things seem darkest, you get this guy that comes out of nowhere, runs for president, presents a bold agenda to his party and then to the whole country uh, through the primary and, and general election system, and they transform the world. You saw it with FDR. You saw it with John F. Kennedy. You saw it with Ronald Reagan. You saw it with Barack Obama. Right? There are transformational presidents who come in at a perfect political time to make great change. And I think that's a similar situation that we have here. You know, Democrats are already going to be pushing a global agenda that's going to prioritize what the world wants. We do need an opposition party in this country that puts America first, and that's where the Republican Party is heading. Is there, there, it's, a, it's a party that's going to put families first and America first, and that's, I think, ultimately what America needs at this point. Thank you, Terry. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Kind of an interesting take there from an insider, a guy who says, you know, they raised millions of dollars to try and get these folks elected. It just simply did not work out. I mean, it did not. And um, I mean, who to blame? Uh, There's enough blame to go around. I mean, I would imagine there'll be a postmortem, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I mean, Trump will be the boogeyman because he's the easy target. I mean, he makes himself kind of an easy target. It's not all about Trump. Um, Walker was not a good candidate. I mean, he's a hell of a football player, great running back, but not a good, good candidate. Um, I had someone stop me in the locker room yesterday at the gym and said, you know, I would have had a problem voting for Herschel Walker, except to know that he would have been a reliable vote. You know, when it came to time to, I mean, people would say and do and, and, and pontificate, but the vote is what matters. And Walker would have been a reliable vote for the Republicans. Um, but it's 5149. They'll chair um, all of the committees. And that's just uh, the way it is. We're talking about Elon a second ago. I found this interesting. I want to make sure I get this story right. Um, this is not about um, Twitter. Uh, here we go. Um, this is kind of an interesting. Uh, this is a. Um, this is kind of self-taught math. You ready? I made an A in self-taught math <laughs> in the fifth and sixth grade because I could teach myself and um, I could score myself. Kind of like playing golf. You know, I write my own score down, and you got to deal with it. So the Department of Energy has a um, an Argonne National Lab. They do extensive research. They do studies that show. Um, basically they're committed right now to climate change and what we need to do to, you know, to save the planet and keep all of us from burning up like a crisp by the year 2035. But they did a, um, they did a study on U S privately owned plug-in hybrid electric vehicles, but they've got a, a, um, uh, an abbreviation FEVs, P-H-E-V-S, plug-in hybrid electric vehicles and electric vehicles, EVs. We know what they, uh, kind of the, um, the abbreviations of the acronyms. I guess is what I'm talking about. Um, and they say in their report 
that the the FEVs, the PHEVs, and the EVs saved about 690 million gallons of gasoline. Now, now stick with me for a second. So they're saying that that's saving the planet, that's keeping up all of us safer. You're not going to burn up. I'm not going to burn up. 690 gallons of gasoline saved. To me, it's a huge exaggeration. I went back and, and did some math. I mean, they did a lot. I did a little bit. Um, fossil fuel, the burning of fossil fuel generates about two-thirds of all electricity. It's actually 62%, but I'm arguing two-thirds. I mean, I'm rounding off a little bit, rounding up, to be honest. Um, so only about a third of your parent savings is a real reduction in fossil fuel use. I mean, we're not burning fossil fuel and get internal combustion engine. We're burning fossil fuels to generate electricity to charge the internal combustion. I mean, excuse me, the electric vehicle. So if you if you break it down that only about a third of the apparent savings is a real reduction in fossil fuel, that equals about 130 million gallons. So we didn't save 690. We saved 130. The Argonne report also says that from 2010 to 2021, EVs have saved 2.1 billion gallons of gasoline, 2.1 billions of gallons of gasoline. So let's apply the same math to this. Um, let's be generous and say that in 11 years, EVs have um, saved a third of that. Remember, two thirds of the electricity is uh, generated by burning a fossil fuel. So a third, that would be about 750 millions of gas, 750 million gallons of gas we've saved in the last decade. Um, Sound like a lot of gas, doesn't it? I mean, that's three quarters of a billion. Yeah. 730, 750 million gallons. We use about 370 millions of gallons of gas a day. So in 10 years, in 10 years, excuse me, in 11 years, we've saved, electric vehicles have saved two days worth of gasoline. In 11 years, electric vehicles have saved two days worth of gasoline burning. Mm. Stick with me. Direct taxpayer subsidies for electric vehicles have cost we, the people, about $10 billion to date. The government just extended the EV subsidy until 2020, excuse me, 2032. And I don't know if you know this or not, but in some of that green energy deal, the new green deal, uh, the one that McConnell talked some of his uh, Republicans into voting for, um, it removed the cap on the number of vehicles eligible for the subsidy. There was a cap. I mean, it could only be so many. If you were exceeded that amount, then you just didn't you didn't receive the uh, the tax benefit. Well, you do now. So there's no cap on that subsidy. In other words, if everybody in America had a electric vehicle, you'd all receive um, the subsidy. The U.S. government also just approved spending an additional seven and a half million dollars of taxpayer money on charging stations. Um, they're going to compete directly with convenience stores. So if you own a convenience store, um, you know the the federal government's opening up shop next door to compete with you and how they power. So we spent about, what, seven, eighteen and a half trillion dollars. So if you look at the amount of gas we saved and the amount of money we spent, it's costing about $23 per gallon of gas. Of course it has. 23 gallons, $23 per gallon of, course. of gas saved. I mean, the, 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 how can we take these people seriously? I mean, how for the life of me do we believe? And I love these politicians who get together and say, well, we passed this EV plan. We got this tax credit. We'll build these, these charging stations. challenge them with these I, I don't have any idea, Rev, because nobody like me is up there. I mean, it's a little... Well, you need to get there. Well, I mean, it's a back-of-napkin math. I mean, it's just like, okay, 
Um, I mean, that, when, when I read the article, I said, well, the majority of electricity is, you know, generated by fossil fuel. I mean, I was 61%. I rounded up and said 66. And so for argument's sake, I say two third. So, so in 11 years, we saved two days worth of gas by burning, by, by driving electric vehicles. I mean, imagine that now. We're here, we're changing the world. We saved two days of gasoline burning in 11 years, and we're paying about $23 per gallon of gas that we saved. The absurdity of that. But once again, guys, business people don't last long in politics because they make too much sense. There is a bottom line somewhere. It may be way down there, but there's a bottom line you got to get to. Um, Freehold, I may give you some of this data and let you put it on our website for other people to view. I mean, it's just kind of interesting. Is their numbers not mine? I mean, I did a little back and napkin math with it, but but it's just kind of interesting that we're being convinced we're saving money, we're saving the planet. We ain't doing jack. And that's a real complicated <laughs> definition of what is or what ain't. Take a break. Back in just a few. We're spending $23 a gallon of gas just to say we're safe. I mean, you see where I'm headed? I mean, it's the ridiculous nature of government. I mean, when it's nobody's money, it's everybody's money. When it's everybody's money, it's anybody's money. When it's anybody's money, nobody gives a rat's rear in how it gets spent. And that's the nature of government. Let's go to the phone. Will in Fayetteville. Morning, Will. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you this morning? Morning, sir. How are you? All right. So I have... Just started listening to you guys, and uh, I do appreciate everything you guys do and say. But the best thing that I have heard since I have been listening for the uh, last two years, um, you need to get up there. And, Rev, (laughs) tomorrow morning, I want you to stack some wood, some coal, uh, and, and bring the lighter fluid with you. Because we don't have a lot of time. we got to get somebody's seat hot. I heard uh, the Pope speaking about we got to light a fire up a long time ago. I, I think the fire needs to be lit under his chair. I'm flattered. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. But um, I'll help you recruit someone else. I'll help us find another um, someone who's um, kind of obsessed with let's change things. I mean, that's really I mean, I'm serious. I mean, that means a lot to me. And and Rev and I address this occasionally because every now and then someone will confront me about am I interested in in running again? Uh, I'm very interested. I'm just not willing. I mean, I'll say that again. I'm very, very, very interested in running again. I'm just not willing um i've kind of um i've settled in my life that i had a chance and i mean i kind of self-inflicted some things on myself but i do believe this to the caller's comments and i and i believe this with every fiber of my being and i don't mean to be it's, it's going to sound a bit egotistical please understand i don't intend that um not that i can't be that but i don't intend that here um it's going to take people like me i mean it's going to take somebody with a personality and a uh, and a resolve that i do have and, and i i'm not going to tolerate half-assery. I'm not going to tolerate people not doing their best. I'm not going to tolerate people look you in the eyes and tell you they're doing something for you when I genuinely know they aren't. And somebody's got to take that mindset, that skill set, that demeanor, that attitude, that approach, and involve themselves in government. I mean, it's going to take a fearless attitude. It's going to take a, someone who's kind of got a, you know, what's the old saying, charge hell with a water pistol? 
I mean, you've got to have that mindset if we're going to execute major change in our government. Um, Trump is that, no question about it. There is no doubt about it. How many more are there up there willing to do that? I mean, I'm convinced there's a handful, that there's nowhere near enough, but we need people who aren't afraid to say what they mean, mean what they say, and execute those plans when given an opportunity. So, yes, I am extremely interested. I'm just not willing at all. Let's go to the phone. Next is Michael in Florence. Good morning, Michael. Hey, good morning. So, yeah, you know, this whole global warming thing, and and actually what really woke me up, and I think it was Breeze called in one day, and pointed out the fact that carbon dioxide is less than one-half of 1% of all of the gases in our atmosphere. And that was probably about six months ago. And, and since that six months, I ask people all the time, how much carbon dioxide is in the, is in the atmosphere? Nobody's been able to tell me. My favorite one was the guy from New York who could tell me all about how Trump runs his business and then tells me it's impossible for anybody to know how much carbon dioxide is in the atmosphere, which, of course, if that were true, then how could they be saying that it's a problem? Um, And then there was even a reporter asking a lady at a climate change conference about how much what percentage of the atmosphere is carbon dioxide in her answer? I have no idea. And she's at a, she's at a climate change conference, but one of my favorite statistics I looked up cause I, I moved here from California and, and you know, these forest fires to me are ridiculous there because they leave all the fuel laying around at the same time telling people to clear it away from their homes. So their homes don't burn. And, uh, you know, of course, it's on the Internet, so I Googled it, so I don't know how accurate it is. But basically, the um, the figure I found was one California wildfire puts as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as 13 million cars do in a year. So, I mean, all these California tree huggers are all excited about climate change. And to me, they're one of the largest contributors. Well said. Thank you for the call. Appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, just, you know, we owe it to ourselves. I mean, to both callers, be engaged, be involved. I mean, take some, I mean, make an investment in government. That's the only way. I mean, government will never fix itself. I mean, government does not have the ability to internally address its misgivings and failures and fallacies because in all honesty, they don't believe they have that problem. I mean, they operate under a different set of rules and standards. We've got to make sure some of those outside forces and beliefs are implemented. Back in a minute.
The king of rock and roll singing a little Christmas music here um, this morning. Yeah, I never tire of that song. I love that rendition of that song. Big Elvis fan. I love Christmas. So Elvis singing Christmas carols is about as good as it gets as far as I'm concerned. All this intrigue with Twitter, James Baker, Elon Musk. Elvis. Um, the Republic Elvis too, right? The Republicans <laughs> taking uh, control of the House of Representatives. They ain't taking control of anything else. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Got I a know. shellacking yeah. other than taking over control of the House. Not the Senate, obviously. We know that um, as of yesterday. But uh, do you think there's a chance uh, for those of us that believe that there should be some accountability on these issues that anything will actually get done? Well, I mean, it's interesting. There will be an investigation for sure. I mean, Jordan will not let that slide. He'll chair the House Judiciary Committee. Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan. I mean, there, there's no doubt about that. Um, I find it interesting. I mean, we had story after story after story after story after story after story about Trump and his taxes and, you know, buying cars or, you know, um, giving advantage to executives in his company without reporting that as income, um, declaring a value to the um, to the tax man, declaring another value to the um, to the banks. I mean, we know all about that. I mean, he's gotten a lot of trouble. There's some fines and I think oh, that led mainstream media reporting yesterday for sure. But but I did see an article this morning in the Wall Street Journal, which is conservative bias, it's conservative leaning, but it ain't Fox News. I mean, it's not Breitbart or RedState.com. Uh, the Wall Street Journal basically says that one of Twitter's top lawyers was, their word, exited part of the fallout from the billionaire's unusual efforts to release internal communications to criticize prior practices at the company bought almost six weeks ago. Trump, I mean, I'm... Musk comments to the uh, Wall Street Journal were, why should people believe Twitter in the future if Twitter does not come clean about the past? They also included in this article, once again, the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Baker did not respond to a request for comment yesterday. You would expect Mr. Baker to respond for a comment. He's a lawyer. He knows better than to respond. Um, we, shall, we shall see. I mean, it's just odd to me. And, and one of the most interesting things I've said today, and hardly ever do I say anything interesting I mean, I can rattle. I mean, I can rattle off seven people who work for the FBI. Why? I mean, why do I know that Jim Comey, Andy McCabe, Jim Baker, Peter Strzok, Lisa Page, Kevin Kleinsmith, Christopher Ray? I shouldn't know their names. I mean, why do I know their names? And, and we know that Baker was the guy that kind of led the charge, along with McCabe and some of these others. Strzok and Page were involved in that, in convincing a FISA court judge that a uh, a warrant was um, warranted to go spy on Carter Page. I mean, we know that um, that Baker was intimately involved in that. We know that Baker, now let me be fair, I don't want to be dishonest. I don't know that Baker went to Facebook. Zuckerberg said on the Rogan podcast that somebody from the FBI came to them and said there's likely to be this story. We believe it's Russia disinformation. If you can adjust your algorithms and make sure it's not as widely spread as it would be if not, we know that Baker went to Twitter. We don't know that Baker went to Facebook because Zuckerberg said a an agent from the FBI. That's the story here. I mean, the story here is um not whether Twitter suppressed free speech. I mean, they have a right to do that. Not whether Facebook used an algorithm to give you an unfair advantage over me. I mean, they have a right to do that. But but a government agency cannot violate the First Amendment rights of anybody. And if an FBI agent um, leaned on Twitter to convince them to do that, that is a violation of the First Amendment. I mean, that's a big deal. The biggest deal of all, and we've not talked enough about it, is where does all this lead? 
How about the Hunter Biden laptop? I mean, what is on there? Once again, forget the prostitutes, forget the drugs. I mean, that's sad, guys. I got kids. I mean, I love my kids. One of my kids has had bad struggles in his life. I mean, we've addressed those, and, and I hope and pray we, we're past those. But, but I, I, don't, I don't take any joy in that. I mean, personally, I don't see any. I mean, I would be ashamed if I were happy that Joe Biden's son has struggled like he has. I don't hear Tucker Carlson. You, you heard that last night about what Tucker? Tucker lives in Washington. He said, I know Hunter Biden well. I've always liked the guy. We always knew he had a problem with drinking and drugs. We always knew that. But, but Tucker said, basically, I like the guy. But, but the story is not him and his life. The story is whether or not his father was a partner in a business that allowed peddling influence to be monetized. I mean, that, that is the ultimate. I mean, that, that would be where we end up one day answering that question. Did he or did he not peddle influence and use his son as somewhat of a conduit? And we won't know that unless we further investigate. Let's go to the phone. Here's Jeff in Florence. Morning, Jeff. Good morning. Hey, guys. Hey, hey. Jeff. Hey, uh, so I just... On the uh, on the uh, electric cars, you know, you ran through that math and and a couple points. Um, let me ask you a question: When when we switched from horse and buggy to automobiles, don't you think that same thing happened? I don't have any idea. Well, I mean, so you don't either. No roads. No, I, there was no roads, right? Correct. I mean, we we, we there was no gas stations. Clearly. Um, no stoplights, you know, so do you think there was a transition period? That, that, I'm not addressing whether or not there's a transition period. I'm I, addressing I, the math. Saying, I mean, the, the, the math is dishonest. The math play. is misleading. There were right. a lot of market forces in play and we're misrepresenting the realities of the marketplace. That's my beef. So, I'm not saying we should or should not go to electric cars, but if we transition to electric cars, let's at least be honest about the savings. Oh, absolutely. And let's be honest about the investment. So you, you love Elon Musk at Twitter. You, how do you feel about him at Tesla? I love I mean, him. He's the one that's probably he's the one that's probably buying more politicians than anybody to get these uh, uh, these agreements put in place, these subsidies put in place. I don't know that he's buying politicians. He's cashing in tax well, credits. I can assure. You, I mean, he, you, Tesla. Yeah, I, the the only way Tesla's made money is the remarketing of green energy credits. Yeah, absolutely right. GM and Ford have been paying Tesla for years for their tax credits, right? Correct. Um, that that's been a business model. But I mean, you you know how business gets done. You know how it gets done in every other situation. The people who are going to benefit usually spend money on the politicians to get things done. I don't deny and, that. I don't deny and that. It's, and it's probably no different. And I've got no problem with it. Um, that, that's, I mean, do I, I have a problem with lobbying, but that's the way it is, but let's talk about, let's bring it local. Now there was a big announcement about 1300 jobs coming to Florence. Okay. Are, are we going to say we don't want that battery plant? Are we going to, are you going to stand your ground and go out there and say that this is a waste of money that, that we shouldn't give tax credits to this company that wants to come here and build batteries for Volvo and BMW? No, but Jeff, you're misunderstanding my point. My point was not whether or not we're going to invest in green energy. My point is that the Department of Energy is misrepresenting the facts to the American public. They're suggesting that there's a big savings here, and while we're transitioning, it's probably going to be more expensive. Tell us that. I mean, you've articulated it better than they can. You just said that transitioning from one mode of transportation to another 
it is not going to be as cost efficient as you wish it were. The Department of Energy is telling us it is. They're say they're saying that we're saving a bunch of money by doing this, and in reality, we aren't. That's my point. It's not whether or not we should go to electric cars. I would love to live in a country not dependent on Saudi Arabia or Qatar or, or some of these other Middle East countries that we um are, are so That's dependent what we're upon. Doing. Yeah, I mean, so, so I'm for that. But but my point is not that. My point is, don't tell me. Uh, a set of data and numbers that just are genuinely dishonest, fundamentally dishonest. And, and you're, you're, here's what I'll say. If you, if you'll broaden your research and I'm not telling you like, you know, if you'll broaden it, you'll see that some of these alternative energy sources and, and some of the technology that the United States is cutting edge and leading, you know, whether you like it, you label it green new deal, they're building plants in the Gulf coast right now that are taking uh, carbon dioxide and they're making sustainable jet fuel. They're making biodiesels out of it. I don't know how they're doing it, but I can tell you I do business with companies that, that are building these plants. It's happening. But you and, would agree, you would agree as you and I are talking or arguing here this morning about something that about 60 to 66% of our electricity is generated by the burning of fossil fuel. We, yes. Okay. Natural gas. And if Absolutely. we, and if we charge, stick, stick, no, but let, let me, let me finish. That. And you know, I've always given you adequate time. Yes. I've never been disrespectful sure. to you and your time. So if we agree that two thirds of the electricity generated are generated by the burning of fossil fuels and electric cars require electricity, then we're still burning fossil fuels to provide the power necessary to charge an electric car. And, and, and that is true. 100% true. Now, what fossil fuel are we burning? Uh, we're burning coal, majority. I mean, a lot of it's coal. No, not all, no some, we're not. Some of it's sir. natural gas. We are. No, that is the transition. Every, every in the United States, almost every coal-fired plant will become a natural gas-fired. Plant. Probably. I mean, I'm not going to say everyone, but the, the vast majority will. Yes. It, it's to a point. It, to a point that uh, coal-fired plants produce a byproduct called fly ash. Fly ash is an important ingredient in concrete. Guess what? It's, it's an important ingredient. I mean, yeah, but, but, but we're, we're now having shortages of fly ash because we are transitioning to a clean. And, and look, at the end of the day, it's about clean and cheap. And we've got natural gas abundant. These plants are clean. You don't hear. I mean, you, you're going to find nobody who complains about a natural gas fired plant. Can you agree with that? I can agree with that, but you're not giving. I mean, there are a lot of innovative ideas as it relates to coal. You've got scrubbers and reprocessors. I mean, there are a lot of things being done. People aren't giving up on coal. I hear that, and a lot of people believe that. But coal isn't an abundant natural resource, and there are people right now working on a way to more cleanly burn coal i mean there's all and these that, scrubbers and and processes to remove the contaminants i, I did well J jeff you and i agree on this i think we agree it is a very complicated debate it is a complicated matter i'm not opposed to electric vehicles i've never been opposed to electric electric vehicles i just like the government being honest with the people and if you tell people we're saving this much money by burning electric cars when we really aren't then let's just talk honestly about the transition and where we hope to be one day, but it's going to be expensive to get there. 
It, 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 there is a cost associated with transitioning. Oh, nobody's ever. So that. why won't the Department of Energy think, say that? Why is the Department of Energy trying to mislead do, the public? I mean, honestly, they do. You just have to look for it. And, and you have to look outside your traditional news sources, which gets me to my last point real quick. Well, this is actually it, from um, Bloomberg. <laughs> yes. I, I, I Didn't Mike Bloomberg run for president as a Democrat? Sure, he did. Was he okay. a Republican? Well, I mean, I, I don't. I mean, you saying you saying traditional news? I mean, Bloomberg is a respected financial news service. I think you would agree to that. Yeah. Okay. But, but can we trust the news? Uh, can we trust the news? Now you're talking. You now, now you're talking. <laughs> now, now, now you and I are. Yeah. Let's have a beer, Jeff. Yeah. So let's let's. Well, we're, we're, let's have a beer. Where are you going to be at five thirty this afternoon? <laughs> Wherever you want. Um, let, let's put it this way. Do you? What is Twitter? Twitter's, uh, I mean, it, it, for Musk refers to it, the digital town square. That's about as good as I can do. Okay. So it, would you say it's a news source? Uh, quasi. Okay. No, half half it's pregnant. A content source. It, it, is, it is a content social media source. Correct. What it is. That, that, that integrates anybody, some news in. No, 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 no. If, if NBC, CBS, Fox News wants to have a Twitter account and post news on it, they can do that. But so can anybody. Sure. It is not a news source. It is a social media platform. That news is readily available. It's true, right? So so when you talk about um, Twitter and in the news, the content on Twitter is not reliable unless you know the source for it. And that's that's the challenge here. You know, it, to say that it is a media company is wrong. Okay, I, I'll There's agree with that. I, it's not a media company; it's a social media platform. Right, and and we knew that when you talked about why the FBI showed up at Twitter headquarters, they showed up at the FBI headquarters because of the law changes after the 2016 election. By law, in a position that was created under Donald Trump, the czar put in policy in place to regulate and to con- and to help monitor social media. You know this, right? I do. Okay. So wh- when you say, why did this man go to Twitter? Who went to Facebook? Are you comfortable? And I mean, it, It's no boogeyman. No, but, but, but it is a boogeyman, there Jeff. There is a reason are, they went. Are you comfortable? So okay, you as an American citizen. I mean, you, you're, you're, you're not a wild flame. I mean, I don't think you're a crazy liberal. I mean, I think you're left of center. I think I'm right of center. Having said that, are you comfortable as an American citizen with the FBI going to Twitter or Facebook, encouraging or discouraging them to run their business a certain way with political bias and implications? So you're saying with political bias, and, and I'm asking you. You okay with the FBI the suggesting political bias under any, under any circumstance? Should the FBI ever involve themselves in political bias under any circumstance? But they have. And, and, and we know that. No, no, but, but you, you, you're Hillary not answering Clinton. my question. They should they or should they not? I mean, as an American citizen, I'll go on the record. I don't think the FBI should ever involve themselves in any situation that, that creates the even the consideration that they may be politically motivated. Okay, and, and, and I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but, but let's acknowledge something. James Comey did that to the benefit of Donald Trump, un- unintentionally. Right. Well, if he did it for the benefit uh, of Trump, he did it unintentionally. You can rest assured of that. 
Right, but he did. But listen, that's a lifelong Republican. Don't you know that? That's a never James Trump Comey Republican. You're right. It's a, a lifelong, lifelong Republican, Republican and a never Trump Republican. You know that. He, he he opened that investigation within the window, reopened it, and and you know that hurt Hillary Clinton. Yes, okay. I mean yes, it did. But, and I don't I don't think Comey, if if Comey was going to provide all that information, an indictment should have followed. I mean, if he was going to provide the country with that much incriminating information, then he should have indicted Hillary Clinton. If he was not going to indict, he should have never publicly engaged. But he did. But he did. Right. And I'm not saying, look, that is what it is. But because of uh, what happened in 2016, the government created agencies. They put a czar in place. They passed laws. That is, and, and don't kid yourself, it wasn't like anybody just decided to go to Twitter. Or Facebook, by law, that is what the FBI was doing under the direction of the Trump administration. You know that. Last question, and I've given you plenty of time. I mean, you, you've you've had the chance to editorialize as much as sure. I have for the last five minutes. Sure. Under any circumstance, should the FBI involved in politics? When you say that, it's. They shouldn't, but were they doing their job when they went to Twitter and Facebook? Who was directing them to go? But but they went to they went to Facebook and Twitter on behalf of a campaign or political candidate. That no, they didn't. That's they, alarming they, to me, Jeff. Trump, the the information that Mark, or uh, I'm sorry, Elon Musk released said they showed up and the FBI showed up and talked to the government. Then also Trump and Biden's campaigns also talked to them. That's the three people were talking. So you don't believe, okay, you, you and I may disagree here. You don't believe the FBI went to Twitter and Facebook to help Joe Biden. Why would Donald Trump... See, that's where we disagree. I mean, if the, if the answer is anything other than yes, then we just... They went to Twitter and Facebook to put their thumb on the scale of an election to aid one candidate over another. I believe that with every fiber of my being. I can't make you believe it, but that's the question we need to find the answer to. I, I, listen, I, I, I understand your position on it. I, I you, you believe that. I can't convince you otherwise. I'm just asking you to, to take into account who was leading the Justice Department and the FBI at that time. Fair enough. Thank you, Jeff. Appreciate the call. Didn't the FBI supposedly have the laptop since December of 2019? Sure. So they would have known that it was legit. Of course and they it knew was it not was legit. Russian disinformation. Look, Jeff will never be convinced, but, but I believe with every fiber, I can't prove this, but the FBI went to Facebook, they went to Twitter to try and affect the outcome of a presidential election. And if you're not alarmed by that, then you and I just share different DNA. Take a break. Back in a minute. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Bill in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning, Bill. Hey, good morning, fellas. Hey, Ken, so you'll appreciate a good conspiracy theory. So, <laughs> Jeff, I'm glad you have Jeff on the radio because it just proves that I'm right. Um, but anyway... Thinking about the horse and buggy theory, okay? Everybody in the world right now, everybody in the United States has a car right now, pretty much. Nobody, only rich people have a horse. Okay, so is that going to turn out to be that only rich people have a car? 
I hear you. Uh, yeah, the equestrian and polo class is what he's referring to. Thank you. Appreciate the call. I'm not arguing against innovation or technology or job creation or a transition in the economy. I, yo, yeah, you guys have listened to me long enough. I mean, I'm not that stubborn and bullheaded. I mean, on some things I am, but on innovation, technology, market forces, I mean, I'm all about that. But when I read this report from the Department of Energy and the Argonne National Lab, I mean, I just, I, I question things. I mean, that's my nature. I'm always questioning things so i started doing the math and the numbers didn't add up and the point i'm trying to make is if the department of energy are in charge of you know um i don't know if selling uh, an issue to the american public be honest don't be misleading and they're being completely misleading when they said i mean their, their own words that they released a study that showed in 2021 u.s privately owned plug-in hybrid electric vehicles uh, PHEVs and electric vehicles, EVs, save 690 million gallons of gasoline. 66% of our electricity, that's about 61% of our electricity is generated by fossil fuels. So that turns 690 into 130 in no time. That's the point I'm trying to make. If we're going to talk about market forces in concert with the government, at least let's give an honest accounting. The people deserve to know the truth. Let's go to the phone. Tony in Hartsville. Hey, Tony. Good morning. How are you gentlemen doing? Hey, Tony, how are you? Great. Thank you. I just had one question, Mr. Ken. I'm, I'm just a dumb old country boy. I, I'm not a genius, but I listened to this gentleman speak earlier. When they create these batteries, where would they be disposed of and how would they be disposed of for us take it, the question take the answer off there thank you it, it, i mean i can't go into specific detail i was on county council in florence county when johnson controls came here and we were concerned about some of the um i mean some of the rest and residue the leftover debris after these batteries they're highly toxic i mean there are a lot of um, elements and ingredients in these things um they made a lot of advancement but it's a dirty business i mean it's a dirty industry um, building batteries and destroying batteries and, and recycling batteries. Once again, uh, I'm not the expert, but, but I was convinced that these companies have a handle around the process of turning, you know, it's, I mean, once again, it's still an old, dirty business. I mean, it's a very, very dirty business. It's, there's a lot of contaminants. There, there are a lot of things that aren't very pleasant in the ground, in the air. Um, there are processes to try to keep the environment as clean as we possibly can. Um, and it is a big deal. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you, Friday at 7.30, our county council chair, uh, the economic development director, and the chair of the partnership between Florence County and the private sector, what they call progress, I mean, all three will be on the air with us at about 7.30 to kind of update, engage, answer any questions we may have about the huge announcement. I mean, it's a big deal. I mean, there's a Japanese battery manufacturer that is building a plant in Florence. I mean, I've known this for a while. But, you know, in confidence, you don't say things that you're not supposed to say. But um, but the announcement was made yesterday. There was an abbreviated announcement a month or so ago. And then there was some um, concern. <laughs> I'll just look at their concern about uh, crossing T's and dotting I's and some issues that had to be addressed. There was a preliminary agreement. And then it had to get real specific. And as, as it got more specific, it got a little more um, uh, testy would be a good word. And, and out of that came an agreement. And the deal is made. There will be roughly 1,200 new jobs. It's about an $810 million investment by a Japanese manufacturer, ba Japanese battery manufacturer. And it's kind of in concert with a big um, announcement in the upstate, BMW, announcing that they were going to start building electric vehicles. I accept that this is probably where we're headed. 
I mean, I really do. Um, and I don't have a problem with it. I mean, I would rather not deal with Saudi Arabia and Iraq and Iran and some of the, I mean, it's an unstable part of the world. They ain't crazy about democracy. Uh, the Western world is not embraced there, despite what Bush and, uh, and Baker and those said, the, the Bush acolytes, and I'm talking about Rumsfeld and Cheney and all that crowd, when they said they'll embrace democracy and, you know, the, the, the oil revenue will pay for all the expenses of the war. Uh, how'd that work out? It's still something I think the Republican Party is saying grace over and trying to come to grips with. So I'm very supportive uh, of trying to build electric cars, trying to wean ourselves off of dependency on foreign oil. But, but I just don't think it's going to happen as easily as some of these, um, some of these leftists believe it is. And I, and I get the concept. I mean, sometimes we get too enthusiastic about an idea or concept, and we fail to be rational or reasonable. I do this. I mean, I do this a lot. I mean, there, there are certain things that I believe in and have passion for. And, and when I look back and say, well, how could you have been that wrong? I mean, why did you ever believe that made any sense? Because I allowed my passion and enthusiasm to block my better judgment. I mean, I wasn't crazy, but, but I allowed that. You know what I mean? It's a little bit like Gamecock football. Now, it did work out. I was going to say it'd be like Gamecock. It'd be like as a Gamecock fan believing that we had a chance to beat Tennessee and Clemson back to back. Well, I mean, every now and then things do happen that don't make any sense, but you can't build your life on that. You can't expect those things to happen over and over and over again. So when I'm critical of the Department of Energy, I'm not critical of electric vehicles. I'm certainly not critical of Elon Musk and Tesla. I admire what that guy's tried to do. I mean, if, if we had a half dozen Elon Musk in the world, I mean, it'd be a better place without question. Is he perfect? No. Does he make mistakes? Of course he does. But, but the guy's trying to make the world a better place for humanity. That is an honorable and noble goal. Let's go to the phone. Bert in Florence. Hey, Bert. Hey, I'm a little bit confused on something. I read a while back. Did you talk to one of them gods you believe in? So <laughs> <laughs> no, I read a study that said that they had estimated the amount of materials available in Earth to make these batteries, and there was not enough in existence to actually replace all the cars that it just wasn't there. So we're investing full time and long term for, for something that is limited. I mean, I don't get that. And, and it's, I don't see how it's helping us to begin with because we're still going to other countries and, you know, frankly, paying slave labor and putting children digging this stuff up to make the batteries. So, you know, when you add that to the complaints of, Oh, I had my car for, I don't know, what was it, four or five years, and the battery went bad, and to replace the battery is going to cost me more than the value of the car, so it's not doable. How is this electric car business any better? I mean, not only just financially, but physically for the material to make it. Thank you, Bert. I don't know that we know it is. I mean, I don't think we know that. The, the I mean, as a business person, I would argue – that the amount of whatever, iron ore, um, lithium, whatever ingredient, metal ingredient or, or, or a natural resource, there's a better way of saying it, whatever natural resource we need to mine to build these batteries, you got to believe if it takes X amount today, it's going to take 30% less in 20 years. But I mean, there's always an innovation and a, and a technological approach to, to all of this. But, but the point I've got, the, the point I'm trying to make, guys, is Joe Biden stood on a stage as the Democrat nominee for president and is now the president of the United States and said with somewhat of a straight face 
that we're going to be we're not going to be burning any fossil fuel by the year 2035. I mean that's absurd. That's reckless, careless, dangerous, but more than anything, it's absurd. I mean, it would be ridiculous for someone sitting in the bar after your eighth beer to say that. But a sober man, I mean, he's in cognitive decline, but a sober man nonetheless to say that I want to be leader of the free world and part of my agenda is to not be burning any fossil fuel in 12 years. That, I mean, I don't see how anybody can buy into that. I mean, this is a generational, I think Jeff even said that. I mean, this is kind of a generational shift. To Bert's point, um, how much natural resources do we need to build the batteries? I mean, that, that's the question nobody knows the answer to. It's a little bit like climate change. We're estimating. We're, we're projecting. We're speculating on what the future holds. And, and I, I have faith in humanity. I have faith in ingenuity. I have faith in innovation. I have faith in people like Elon Musk. But, but if the government continues to try and drive you know, the free market or the marketplace into a certain direction or other, it won't perform as well. I mean, it will be so manipulated that we may not have enough natural resources by the time we wean ours. In other words, if there are no internal combustion engines anymore and everybody's figured it's economically infeasible to build those internal combustion engines and somebody wakes up one day and says, we don't have any more, you know, stuff to make the batteries out of. I mean, where do we go from there? But, but humanity has always had the ability I mean, if, if left unencumbered, if government doesn't get too involved in the affairs of the private sector, it normally figures it out. Right, Rev? I mean, that, that's going to give your and, complaint. And that's my preferred way to do let, it. Let's let but, the, because I think Teslas are cool, and now I have a real interest in BMW EVs, obviously because of the big announcement for our area. So I'm all for it. They're cool. But let the marketplace dictate the terms and conditions. Yeah. Let's go to the phone. Tim and Pamplico. Hello, Tim. Hey, how y'all doing this morning? Hey, Tim. I had to turn my radio down so I couldn't hear you. Um, but anyway, look here. So um, back in the ooh, 2000-ish, they were building the um, cross-generating station. They were putting in units to, I think, three and four then. Guess what they did right there? Right then, time as they were building this coal-burning plant, they put in scrubbers and absorbers. That was to meet regulations about lowering the SO2 levels and stuff like that. So, you know, they wouldn't be polluting as much. We've been putting in scrubbers and absorbers on, on per our EPA on these plants for years and have brought them up to speed. We just totally tore down and rebuilt the whole new plant up at what was called Cliffside, North Carolina. It's one of the first power plants on the Broad River up there. Um, that was for Duke Power, I think, back in then when we went up there and built that plant. Scrubbers and absorbers. All of these things have been in place to lower these emissions. See, that's the thing about it. When they these environments, when they get an inch, they want to take a mile. They want to keep right on going, right on going, right on going. See, what did this do when it uh, when they had to do all that? It made your electricity prices go up. Same thing with um, anything else that they get their hands in. It, it's it's going to be a transfer of wealth before it's all said and done. Now let's go to our battery plant up here beside the paper mill on the river road. I knew guys because a lot of guys left construction that were from here. From our, we, we left Wellman when it closed in 08. We went on the road for construction, and then the battery plant opened up, and we a lot of guys went there for maintenance. I would not work there. Because every 30, 90 days, you had to be tested for lead levels. You had to dress out every day in 
um, a containment suit with breathing air, supplied breathing, you know, mask, all of this with a pipe running up behind you, forcing oxygen to you to, to go into these areas. And you would tape your wrist up, tape your ankles up on your um, suit to make sure you didn't get lead on you. Some, some guys would even lose their jobs because their lead levels would get so high. Now, all of that being said, about every plant there is, every plant, paper mill, battery plant, coal burner plant, has rules and regulations via the EPA, of course, that they are not supposed to exceed. Guess what? About once a month, sometimes twice a month, sometimes many times a month, sometimes many times a year, guess what don't happen? The little valvey thing up there might not work. And so you get a release, and they have to report these things to the EPA. If, if they've had an extra amount of a release, therefore then they get they get fined and everything else. But all of all of this goes back around to uh, transfers of wealth because see it's going for I can't afford a seventy thousand dollar Tesla. I don't want one. And then on top of that, I have to buy the battery, keep all this maintenance up. The rats eating the wires, the high-priced tires, because we're not going to have petroleum to make the tires out of, so tires will be sky-high, too. What are the poor old farmers going to do? They say, oh, we've got electric tractors coming. That's going to be really nice when you're out there in, in Midwest in the middle of a 12,000-acre field and can't charge your tractor back up. But the um, everything that they do, it seems to me, is a transfer of wealth, as as always, you see. Now, let's go to... What are they doing with the um, big old propeller fans that come off of the windmills? They either stacking them up out there in Wyoming or burning them. They can't even be recycled. They're made of a carbon fiber, and for some reason, you know, fiberglass can be recycled, plastic can be recycled, but for some reason, and I don't know why, um, carbon fiber cannot be, this stuff apparently cannot be recycled. So they're burying them in some of the most pristine wilderness there is. And now let's go to the the lithium mine. Hey Tim, we got to take a break. Well, I'm sorry, um, Tim could go on forever. I know Tim grew up with Tim. <laughs> I will say this: as Tim speaks and some of these other callers, it reminds me a little bit of Springsteen. Springsteen admitted that he sang about things he knew nothing about. That's my problem with the Department of Energy. How many people at the Department of Energy have ever worked in a plant that generates electricity? Or works at a plant that makes batteries. There's a real world and there's a there's a theoretical world. The theoretical world deals in raw particulates. The real world is how much lead do I have in my body or not? I mean, you see what I'm saying? You got to juxtapose those two to one another. Springsteen admits that he was a fraud. I'm ready for the Department of Energy and some of these bureaucrats to admit we don't know, man. We just throw a lot of numbers together, and it looks like. This is the way it'll work. If we give up on fossil fuels, the most reliable source of energy in the history of mankind, we'll get exactly what we deserve. Back in a minute. You know, in some of these sales and marketing classes, there's always a, a place where you kind of rehearse, you do your, you know, your sales call, and um, they're coaching you up, and they, they, they train you and condition you to say, can I count on you? Can I count on you? And they count on you. Are, are you in? You know, are you good? You got to do that hard sale at some point in time. Um, I'm not good at the hard sale. I mean, I think I'm good at the sale. I'm not good at the hard <laughs> sale, um, but we need your help. And we talked a little bit about it. We're getting closer and closer to the time that we're going to ask these ladies at Community Broadcasters and Pepsi-Cola of Florence to go shopping for us. Um, the ad's running, but I think it means more when it comes from us. Uh, Rev and I have a place in our heart for Mr. Avant, the Avant family. Mr. Frank Avant is, um, is somebody we're trying to pay tribute to 
by the season of giving. Um, he was the general manager of Pepsi of Florence for 51 years. They have very much continued in his tradition. We're trying to raise money for six needy families, six unexpecting families. The youth mentors of the PD and Boys and Girls Club of the PD have identified these six families. Pepsi of Florence is our title sponsor. We've got Redbone Alley. we got PD Electric. got Florence Toyota, Mr. Sparky, Benjamin Franklin Plumbers, Trinity Auto Glass, Victor's Walk-Up Electrical, Anderson Brothers Bank, Stoudemire Dowling Funeral Home, Swap Payment Solutions. They've done their part. I mean, they've really helped us make this a success for what the third consecutive year we're trying i'll tell you we're trying to raise in excess of five thousand dollars and it's interesting they want pots and pans and socks and shoes i mean it's not ipads and smartphones i mean these families are needy Uh, a lot of us have been blessed to some degree varying degrees but we need you to help us and it's getting closer and closer to that time that we need to start preparing uh, to go shopping and get these gifts ready and assembled so we can um, you know, surprise these families on Christmas. Rev does a better job than I can of telling you how to contribute, uh, but I'm not making a hard sale. I'm just pleading with you, please help us make the season of giving a success by giving however much you can. Go to the live953.com website. That's live953.com and click on the season of giving banner at the top. It'll take you to the page where you can click on a link to see the list of the items that we're shopping for for our families. There's also a donate button. That's where you come in. Click on the green donate button. Make whatever donation you feel is appropriate and our, uh, our folks, uh, the folks at Pepsi-Cola Florence and here at Community Broadcasters, uh, they've already started shopping for the items on the list, and we appreciate your help in making this possible again this year. We certainly do. 843, well, I would give you the number, but if you called, we're out of here. we got about 15 seconds, actually 10 seconds before the show's over. Help us do that. I don't want to put a hard sale because I'm not good at that. But we're in this thing together. Together, let's help these six families. We'll talk tomorrow. Scofields is having a tax-free firearm and ammo sale, which includes all handguns, concealed carry firearms, ARs, rifles, hunting shotguns, and home defense guns, including brands by Glock, Tar, Smith & Wesson, Ruger, Browning, Benelli, Rattay, and Springfield. Plus, be sure to take advantage of Scofields' handgun rebates, too, with rebates ranging from $25 to $75. And because of the tax-free firearm sale, You'll receive additional savings there as well. Schofields also has all ammo tax-free through Saturday, which includes all ammo on the shelves in the store. And if you're looking for great deals on firearms and ammo, don't miss the tax-free firearm and ammo sale along with $25 to $75 rebates. Select handguns through Saturday. If you're having a hard time thinking of Christmas gift ideas, let Schofields be your gift headquarters where they have all Carhartt clothing, buy one at regular price, Get the second one 25% off. It includes all Carhartt pants, coveralls, coats, and shirts. Again, buy one at regular price. Get the second one 25% off. Schofields also has other top clothing brand specials on Drake, Bandit, and Columbia clothing. Buy one at regular price. Get the second one 50% off, which includes all Browning, Under Armour, Mountain Khaki, and Cool clothing. If you're looking for some great stocking stuffers, Schofields has all knives. Buy one at the regular price. Get the second one 50% off. All Yeti drinkware, buy one, get the second, 25% off. Again, all Yeti cups and thermoses, or buy one, get the second one, 25% off. If you're looking for a new pair of Georgia boots for that special person on your list, right now, Schofields has $20 off any pair of Georgia boot footwear. All of this and more at Schofields just down from Five Points in Florence, plus, uh, yeah, 
Please follow Schofields on Facebook and Instagram for specials and giveaways. Schofields, shop local, buy local. Yep, that was the only one. You ready? Schofields is our sponsor today, and if you're looking for great deals on firearms and ammo, don't forget their tax-free firearm and ammo sale. This, ah, darn it, that sucked. Schofields is our sponsor today. If you're looking for great deals on firearms and ammo, don't miss their tax-free firearm and ammo sale through this Saturday, along with $25 to $75 rebates off select handguns, all at Schofields. This week, Schofields has all card clothing. Buy one at regular price. Get the second one 25% off. All Yeti cups and thermoses are buy one. Get a second one 25% off. And our George... And all Georgia boot footwear is $20 off any pair, all at Schofields. 